This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, it has been so long since we have created a Plucked Chicken Podcast. I didn't even know if the equipment would work, but I found some stale beer and uh, some bananas and threw it in the flux capacitor here, and I'll be doggone, we are good to go. And so today... I am delighted to have Vic, we can't say his name, even though he goes by Ian Kinney, and Vic is going to be here with me as we listen to a pastor together, but before that, Vic, why don't you tell us a little bit, for those who don't know, tell us about what the Vicarage program is. Oh yeah, so for Vicarage, so seminary is four years postgraduate, so uh, you go to any college of your choosing and, and get a degree, a bachelor's degree, and then... You go to Sam and you do in-house for two years, uh, either at St. Louis or at Fort Wayne. Um, and then on your third year, you get sent somewhere in the country uh, to serve on basically uh, an internship. So you go and serve on an internship and you are at the beck and call of your supervisor to do uh, whatever he needs you to do. So uh, I'm at Risen Savior with Pastor Robert Weinkoff. So he has me assist with all aspects of the parish, uh, preaching and, and teaching and, uh, and VBS and youth work and all that kind of stuff. And so then after Vicarage is over, uh, at the end of this year, uh, I will uh, go back to Fort Wayne for a fourth year, finish up studies, and then, uh, God willing, get sent somewhere out into the, into the church. You know, that's fascinating because uh, I got my degree from a Baptist seminary here, and they don't have a vicarage program. You know, it's hmm. really all just studies for three to four years, uh, depending on how, how bright you are uh, and how many classes you take, just like in college. I, I think it's fascinating that the Lutheran mm -hmm. system has you go out into the field. Sure. And, you know, it's that continuing... Um, uh, that the formation, that pastoral formation continues right. in that vein. What I what I've heard from guys that have gone on vicarage and come back is that the way that vicarage is kind of sandwiched between seminary years is that you do the in-house academic stuff, and then you go out and actually sit at the bedside of dying people. Uh, you mourn with people as they uh, as they bury their uh, stillborn children, or you. Um, actually uh, see life happen uh, and serve in the church with people's needs. And then you go back to Sim for a fourth year and everything's kind of in a better context and everything makes a little bit more sense and and studies have a better context, I guess. And, and you can see the, the, the end uh, of the purpose of what you're doing, I guess. Well, we are glad to have had you in Kansas and uh, hope that the Lord brings you back uh, somewhere close around us. That would be just fantastic. Now, normally, we don't allow the vicar even to speak. Am I correct about this? Correct. Um, we don't yes. even say his name. He's always Vic, and then he never speaks. He's right. just supposed to listen. But you get a rare opportunity today, Vic. I do. You get to talk. I get to talk. You do. <laughs> I don't have to sit in the corner. And, and it's not, I mean, and it's publicized. I mean, this is the Pluck Chicken right. podcast. This, right. is, this is kind of a big deal. It's a big deal. So with that being said, here's what we're going to listen to. Now, normally, Pastor Bruss, sometimes Pastor Oakry, sometimes back in the day it was Pastor Ross, we would get together and we would listen to really, really bad sermons. Okay. And those bad sermons were usually preached by really bad pastors. Okay. This is not that. This is a theologically astute sermon. Hmm. 
and it's preached by a really, really great guy. I mean, I know this guy. There was a time in my life where I would have taken a bullet for him. Uh, now, obviously, not so much. Like I said earlier, maybe a low inside pitch. However, I wanted us to listen, especially you. Now, now going back, just to let our listeners know, most of them know that I came in from the outside. I colloquized in after going to a Baptist seminary and uh, preaching at a, a Baptist church for over a dozen years. So I colloquized in, and praise be to God, I'm Lutheran, and glad to be Lutheran. Uh, you, on the other hand, you were raised Lutheran. I was. From your story, you got a little bit of cattywampus in your teenage years. And then praise be to God, uh, there the Lord uses means. And so uh, the Lord used some individuals to, to bring you back into the fray and yep. get you on the right track and blah, 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 blah. blah so blah, blah. here you are, yep. right? Here I am. So here's what we're going to do. This is a thoroughly, what we're going to listen to is a thoroughly Baptist sermon okay. about baptism. Okay. And so what we're going to do is give it a listen, and uh, when you when you want to say something, Vic, this is your time I to can talk shine. Now. Yes, okay. absolutely. That's great. So here we go. So would you stand this morning as we read Matthew chapter 28, the very last words that are recorded that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he ascended. Starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Let's pray. All right, Vic, he obviously begins with the biblical text, which is, you know, it's a wonderful thing, but but what does the Lord say to do? I mean, when he says, this is how you make disciples, this is what you do, what does he say? He says to baptize and to teach. So those two things. And if I could also say, he always, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age, which... I would contend, uh, from what I've been taught, is that that also uh, hints at the sacrament of the altar as well, that he is with you always to the end of the age, not in some abstract or ethereal or esoteric way, but actually in his body and blood and with none of the bread and wine on the altar. Wow. So when we say that this is the Great Commission, obviously he sets it up. And, and you know, this is what Pastor Bruss and I were talking about here recently. To you and to me as pastors... This is law. I mean, there's gospel there, but it's law for you and me because this is our quote-unquote marching orders yes. as pastors. Right. We baptize and we teach. Right. Yeah, baptize and teach. And also with the Great Commission, uh, you probably know better than I do where that actually comes from, but that's not, that's not in Matthew 28. That title of Great Commission is not there, and I think that's... I don't know what flavor of Baptist this gentleman is, um, so I don't know exactly where he stands on that. But I do know that a lot of these kind of folks uh, take that and run with it and get this whole everyone a minister or uh, misconstrued priesthood of all believers. So that's probably something I imagine he'll contend with uh, is because this language of Great Commission, um, I'm pretty sure is just made up because I know it's not in Matthew 28. 
Did he call it the Great Commission? He probably no, no, did. No. I, he, I mean, he I might, did. You did. He might in a second. Okay. Um, but that's that's also something that that I think we would take issue with is that it's 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 just kind of a made up term um, that gets misconstrued in a lot of bad ways. No different from really uh, Luke fifteen, where it's the prodigal son. Right. Right. Which is a terrible title <laughs> for that parable, wouldn't right. you say? Right. And that's kind of the issue too, is that, you know, with the scriptures that have been that have been handed down, you know, not only did we not have, you know, first of all, punctuation and 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 paragraphs, but we definitely, uh, except for some places uh, in the Psalms or some places in the Apocrypha or the Prophets or things like that, we don't have we don't have chapter headings. So whoever came up with these chapter headings and and names for proverbs or parables, that kind of superimposes itself on the scriptures. Uh, when it wasn't supposed to be there. Well, we cut him off right before he started to pray, so let's uh, let's listen back in. Lord, many of us have read this countless times. Maybe some this morning, it's, it's all new. But Lord, I pray that your scripture here this morning that we've just read, Lord, will be clear in our hearts, our minds, that Lord, we'll see and hear you working through the truth that's in this passage. Lord, help us to be attentive. And Lord, I pray that as, as we honor you in listening to your word, Lord, help us to apply it to our life. That you'll use it to change the way we live. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What do you think about that? That's a nice prayer, don't you think? That was a nice prayer. I think you said Dr. Bruss can always tell a lot about somebody by the way that they pray and and dr bruss has forgotten more than i'll ever know so uh he could definitely be more insightful on this but no i i think it's really betraying when someone prays uh what that teaches about their theology how they think about the scriptures and how they think about the church uh and i think that comes out in a number of ways first of all there seems to be this trend i guess we could say in evangelical prayer where there's always these pious pauses, where there's a pious pause, but you can't, you can't actually pause because then that means you don't actually know what you're talking about. So you have to pause and use a filler word. And so instead of using an um or an uh, because then you might sound unintelligent, you fill it with some false piety, adding in a Lord or Lord God or Father God, whatever it is. And so that gives you time to think about what you're going to pray. And it really, at least to me, it always comes off as... as uh, unauthentic and I guess shallow, which might be a poor construction. Uh, but that's my first thoughts on it. Secondly, I always find it interesting and not that you have to use scripted prayers. Um, but I always find it interesting that no one ever seems to do that in, in this modern evangelical world. Well, of course, a lot of these Baptist guys know the Bible way better than me, uh, hands down, know the Bible way better than me. Um, but then there's these strains of Baptists and evangelicals who, even whether it's the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer, refuse to use scripted prayer because then that's not from the heart. And if it's not from the heart, then it's, I guess, invalid. You've said a lot there uh, that I totally agree with. What's really, really interesting about this is in the evangelical world, praying these prayers from the heart, if you were to collect 10 of those prayers from the heart, you would find that they all sound the same. But when you, as a Lutheran, mm -hmm. pray a prayer, say, like the Lord's Prayer, right. 
they look at you and go, you know, it's so rote. It's just the same prayer over right. and over. Mm-hmm. No, you actually fall into the exact same pattern and over time becomes a repetitive prayer. Secondly, written prayers. Oh my goodness, this is verboten in evangelical circles. Yeah, and what I think is really interesting, uh, or I guess ironic, is that you know he's he's reading in the gospel where Jesus says that you have to baptize and teach, um, and so the idea of this is that you have to teach people the faith, including teaching them how to pray. Right? Lord, teach us to pray. Pray When you pray, pray thus. Uh, you teach people to pray. And so, like we have in the, in the LCMS, these, these historic collects of the church that have been passed down to us, we're taught how to pray because we don't know how. Uh, you, you don't know how to pray, so you're taught how to pray. And I think that betrays it as well. But like you said, they have been taught to pray, but it's just whatever, whatever comes out of their heart uh, that they think that they need to pray. And lastly... I think it's obviously good to pray before reading the scriptures. That's not bad. Even in the historic liturgy, there's these rubrics for the priest to pray before reading the gospel. Um, and even the rubrics for the laity and the priest uh, or the pastor to make the sign of the cross on the forehead, the lips, and the heart, um, as well as that prayer. Cleanse my lips, O Lord, as you once cleansed the lips of the prophet Isaiah, and that by the words of the gospel, our sin might be blotted out. So that's good, and we should pray before reading the scriptures. However, uh, I think that his prayer just goes on so long, I would say, is because they have nothing else. You think that's a long prayer? I think that's a long prayer that kind of just toddles on about nothing. Oh, my. <laughs> I could play you prayers. My <laughs> goodness. Well, I think what it is is that, you know, for these, uh, again, I don't know what flavor of Baptist he is, but for these evangelicals. He's I mean, a Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. Okay. I mean, you you have substantially no sacraments. So you have nothing else as we would, of course, pray. You know, we have, for example, Luther's flood prayer. We would pray before baptism. We pray before the Lord's Supper. We pray before absolution. But they have none of this. All they have is their paper pope. All they have is the Bible. Well, and here's the deal. What you said earlier truly resonates with me. There's no doubt that this man knows his Bible better than you do. Way better. Okay. Guarantee it. Most Baptists that would lean... Uh, in this man's direction, you know, towards the fundamentalist side. Right. And he's not in the fundamentalist camp, but he's he's going to be closer. He's going to align closer with them than, say, I don't know, with uh, liberal or Pentecostal okay. type of leanings. Okay. Okay. And I was raised in this exact same melu. So we know the ages from Adam dying. I mean, we know when these jokers died. We know that Methuselah is the oldest man in the Bible, uh, 969 years of age. I mean, we we fill our heads with biblical knowledge, Yeah, which is a good thing. Nobody's yeah. arguing that. Yeah. The problem is what the Baptists don't understand is what's called sedes doctrinae. They don't understand that the seat of doctrine about certain Christian teachings— it just kind of all gets washed in uh, to the same biblical data. Does that make sense? Yeah. Luther comes along and he writes the small catechism. Right. This is Sedes Doctrinae on the six chief parts. Correct. And of course, as you know, this is the commandments, the Lord's Prayer. This is on baptism. This is on confession and absolution, all of that. Sacrament right. of the altar right. and the Apostles' Creed. Right. They don't look at things like Sedes Doctrinae. Hmm. Everything, everything is just biblical data. 
Nothing is more important than something else. Interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said, there's things that I'll hear on this that I'll agree with. And Oh, yeah. And oh, it, no it, doubt. Right. And it is sad to me uh, that, for example, us as Lutherans, um, we don't know what's in the Bible. We have no idea what's in those 66 books. I, I, I think, by and large, we are biblically illiterate. And so friends that I have, for example, at seminary that came out of the uh, Baptist church, they know the Bible up, down, left, and right. It is embarrassing how well they know the Bible. I guess there is this issue with maybe not knowing what to do with it because right. they're, they're outside of this, as Jesus says, teaching. You're outside of this historic catechesis sure. and you don't know what to do with sure. this. Sure. Listen, this was a hard thing for me as I was uh, coming out of this fundamentalist evangelical camp, you know, looking at the Lutherans and seeing all these Lutherans come to church and not a one of them is carrying a Bible. Yeah. I mean, this is part and parcel of what we do in the evangelical church. The bigger the Bible, the better the Christian. I mean, this was, you know, if you can have you one of them floppy Bibles that open up real <laughs> floppy-like. But my goodness, the, the Lutherans, they don't do that. Right. And even then, at home, they don't, they don't really read their Bible a lot. They'll read their portals of prayer. Correct. Yeah, so that's the issue is that, and I think it, it kind of all comes back to this idea of the Great Commission or this idea of, being outside the teaching, as Jesus says, of the church, is that Jesus gives this directive to, you know, at this time, the 11, but he gives it to the apostles, right? He gives it to his, at this time, 11 apostles, that they are the ones who are to go to teach and to preach and to baptize and commune and to confess and to practice. Um, so when the Lutherans come to church without a Bible, that's fine. First of all, because they're going to get the scriptures throughout the liturgy, but also because their pastor should be teaching them that scripture. And then, of course, the father, as the pastor in the home, we could say, should be teaching that scripture in the home, and we are just totally lacking on that. Well, and what the evangelicals don't have, and it, it is absolutely beautiful, is they don't have a church calendar. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. they, there's some things that the evangelical does that is on our church calendar. Okay. Christmas and Easter. Okay. That's about it. Okay. There's no there's no, no leading. Oh, no Ash Wednesday. <laughs> uh, there might be. You know, it's interesting how there's a lot of Ash Wednesday stuff that's popping up that I see in the okay. evangelical world, which is great. But they don't have a Good Friday service, hmm. and they don't have uh, an Advent leading up to Christmas. So the point is, on any given Sunday, I can know where we are in the church year. And for the most part, I can pretty much know and guess after having gone through it a number of times, oh, this is, this is the text that's going to be uh, a focus today. And so here's the point. In the church year, you've got these very critical, important texts that are always highlighted every year. Right. For instance, you don't have in the church year something that is superfluous, something that's on the periphery of um, Christian understanding and knowledge. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's like keep the main thing the main thing. Right, and that's just including the Sundays. I mean, the church year also includes to every day. Well, 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 fair enough. Right, where there's a daily lectionary that even some of these peripheral things do come up. But yeah, right. as far as the Sundays are concerned, right. or the, the chief feasts and the festivals and things like that. Okay, we've talked a lot about this guy's prayer. Let's get into yeah, his sorry. teaching. All right, go back and look at this. Again, known as the Great Commission. In verse 19, 
He says, go and make disciples. Now, that's kind of the, the main verb of the whole mission there that Jesus gives is making disciples. But now notice what he says after this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to camp out this morning on just that one part baptizing them. The reason we are doing it is simply because of what Kyle shared tonight. We'll have a baptism service at Shadow Lake. And we just felt like, okay, this morning would be a great time as a church for us to focus on why do we baptize? If somebody asks you, why does your church baptize? I mean, we're a Baptist church. Most people think, well, okay, Baptist churches baptize. That's why they're called that. Not necessarily. There's a reason, biblically, why we baptize. I want you to know that this morning. I want you to understand that and to see clearly what the Bible says. Now again, Vic, this took me some time to understand what the Bible actually says about baptism. Okay. Uh, even though he's going to say what the Bible actually says about baptism, it's, it's, it's not going to be correct. Okay. It's going to be... Uh, we would say heterodox. Right. It's not going to be an orthodox teaching. Right. Now, I would say this, that in going from heterodoxy to orthodoxy, this is not an easy turn of the page, so to speak. I mean, okay. you, you are taking something that is crooked, and you are making it straight. Okay. And so you think about, you know, getting braces, you think about getting your uh, spine uh, corrected or or uh, your feet, your toes, whatever, the pain that would be involved in this and the length of time that would be involved as well in making something that's crooked become straight. Right. Well, that there's no difference in regard to theological thinking and, and teaching. And so I understand where this man is coming from, and I certainly understand you know, how far off he actually is. It's not something that's just slightly bent. It is a crooked stick. Hmm. You were going to say something earlier. Oh, sure. Yeah. So he uses all these fogey terms, right? They always do. Um, But there's always this idea of um, this discipleship and which is biblical and true. He made this comment that go and make disciples was the focal point of what Jesus was saying, right? The main verb. The main verb, right? Which is an issue because yes it, it is a main verb um and it sounds like he's gonna go on and and actually teach about um you know how jesus says to make disciples baptizing and teaching probably leaving out how jesus is with us always to the end of the age but that kind of falls into play with i guess we could say his own church year as well that he decides to focus on really whatever he wants to focus on so today he wants to focus on this matthew 28 go and make disciples but because they're going to have this random baptism thing, he's like, you know, maybe it's a good idea to talk about baptism. And so what happens, uh, and this is kind of like, you know, the Protestant problem, uh, is that, you know, every pastor is his own bishop and every pastor gets to decide uh, really whatever he wants in the Protestant world. And so instead of being guided and taught by what the church has always taught, uh, he decides to just start teaching about baptism today. So, he, they, of course, they have a church here. It's just whatever the pastor or worship leader wants it to be. Somebody like this man and everybody of his ilk absolutely detests and despises the fact that the Roman Catholics have a pope. Hmm. 
But the problem is they actually become their own pope. Sure you do. do. they not? Sure you do. Their own pope and their own parish. It's like with the Revolutionary War. Do I want one tyrant 3,000 miles away or 3,000 tyrants one mile away? Do I want one pope 3,000 miles away or 3,000 popes one mile away? <laughs> That's what he is. All right, let's get back to him. I want you to first of all notice that this great commission, these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, he didn't begin by saying, hey, I got something I want you to do if, if, if you can fit it into your schedule. If you can work it into your lifestyle. I mean, if you've got some time, I, I, I want you to make disciples. No. I mean, you look how clear he was here. First of all, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That, that right there tells you that, that what he's saying comes with authority. And then he gives a command. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Again, no option right here. This is not something you, you, you check off if you want to do it. So that's another thing, especially with his you know, now professed language of the Great Commission is that he makes it very clear what the scriptures say. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so he brings up that imperative, that command that Jesus gives. Therefore, go. And he misses the, uh, the connection completely, right? Because he's going to put the onus on all the people uh, that you have to go and make disciples. And if you don't, all those people are probably going to go to hell and it's going to be your fault and you're going to have to answer for it. Instead of realizing the connection that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, this transferal of authority to the apostolic church, to these 11, now 11, soon to be 12, and then Paul comes in as well, but to the apostolic church. And he misses that connection, that boat completely. So you're saying here he is um, blurring the lines, so to speak, between the pastoral office and the layman. Right, because what he does is this is the same shtick. That's always the everyone a minister or this misconstrued priesthood of all believers uh, to where you are the one, uh, you know, we would say to preach, teach, baptize, and absolve. But he's going to put that onus on the laity and, and not on the pastorate, not on the priesthood, not on the apostolic church. So you finish your last year and you're called to a church and you go to this church that you notice when people pull out of the parking lot, there's a sign that says you're now entering into your mission field. Yes. It sounds so good, though, doesn't it? It does sound good. And there's a lot of LCMS churches that have that sign on their way out. And, and the issue is, you know, I can take issue with that on one point. But in a real perspective, that's true. You are entering the mission field, but that's within your specific mission and vocation. Whether you are uh, husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, or worker, that is your mission within your vocation. Uh, that you are entering the mission field, but that is within your vocation. Now, the problem with that, if you're in the car with your family, you're actually in the mission field right there. Exactly. If you are being mother, father, son, or daughter in that car, leaving church, you are in the mission field in whatever station of life you've been put in. The problem with that is that it always becomes this priest, this misconstrued priesthood of all believers or this everyone a minister kind of shtick. So you heard him say earlier that this is a command. Right. And in our ears, that means this is law. law. And so as I said earlier, this is law for you and me. Correct. It's gospel for the layperson. Yeah, that's a good point. 
How would this be gospel for the layperson? It's gospel for the layperson because God has given them the office of the ministry. God has given the layperson the office of the ministry to baptize them, teach them, commune them, absolve them, and that's all gospel for them because well, that's a gift that they've been given. Sure, and even Paul says this, doesn't he, when he says that when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men, and yes. then he lists those gifts. Right. And pastors and teachers are a part of this gift that God has given unto men. Right. The exactly. office of the ministry. Exactly. Now, I'll be honest with you. I grew up in a church that discipleship was a class. It was kind of offered on Sunday evening. Hey, if you're interested in, in discipleship, you come to the discipleship class. And so when I would read this in the Great Commission, I would think that's what it was. That go and make disciples is a class. It, it, you know, it's what the church offers. And boy, I don't want you to see it that way at all, because that's not what Jesus was saying. Man, I'm interested in knowing what Jesus was saying, because, my goodness, he, if he said baptize and teach... And then the church is offering a class in which uh, a mathetes, a, a learner, would come and uh, hear what Jesus is teaching. What? What's so bad about that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what kind of church he's talking about that he came from. Southern uh, Baptist. Oh, okay. So it's just a church he grew up in then. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? We would call that catechesis. Right. Uh, where you go in and you uh, are catechized in the faith and in the scriptures uh, and in the doctrine of the church. And that's exactly what Jesus says to do. But I, I can imagine that his problem with it, whether he will say it soon or not, I can't speak for what he doesn't say, but I can imagine that his problem with it is, is that it's not a life lived out. Because I think that's the problem that those two are divorced. That catechesis and a life, you know, the sanctified life, uh, living the Christian life, um, which Christians are obviously called to do, uh, that's always split. And so there, it doesn't, it, it can't be that way. But he thinks it is. He thinks if there is, we'd say doctrine, dogma, catechesis, that that gets in the way of the sanctified life. Even though Paul says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind? Right. And that's that's the thing, is that doctrine and life always go together. It's like that old that old maxim, lex arande, lex credende, lex vivende, the law of basically what you believe impacts how you worship, which impacts how you live. These, these are concentric circles that always run with one another they're never split up and so he is again kind of superimposing his own ideas on what the scriptures say because the scriptures never assume that's going to be split up that the catechized doctrinal life is always combined with love and charity and all these fruit of the spirit now i believe he was saying that this is 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 for the church but it's it's for individuals who make up the church but it's a command no option and so if somebody were to say, why do you baptize? Why do you baptize at your church? Here's the way to answer that. Bottom line, first and foremost, because Jesus commanded it. It's always just this command. There's nothing more than that. It's just that Jesus said it, and so we do it. Kind of like, I guess, some of those folks that celebrate some version of the Lord's Supper, this memorial meal. He says, this do in remembrance of me. Sure. Or some of these folks that still do the foot washings because he says this do and things like that, that it's just this command. This is the spiritual gift of the evangelical church. It is to take that which is gospel and to turn it into law. Oh yeah, that's good. Something that is very beautiful and wow, this is all for you and turn it into damn it, you better do it. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's just this dominical command, and that's all that it ever is. There's no gospel behind it at all. Because, like you said, for the pastors of the church, this is law. But for the people, this is pure gospel. Jesus commanded it right here in the Bible. It's not church tradition. It's not, you know, something that only Baptists do. No, it's what the Bible says we're to do. That word baptized there is immersion. I mean, that's, that's when the Bible uses the word baptized, it's always referring to immersion. That's painful for me to hear this guy who, again, like I said, uh, really respect, say something so uh, ignoramus. Yeah, that's just not true. I know. And I feel bad to say it because, again, I, he's older than me. He's maybe studied Greek longer than me. I don't know. But that's not what it means. No. Uh, it, it does not mean immerse. It, it means to wash. It means to wash. Right. To baptize is to to wash. And I don't know how this comes down in these Baptist circles that it, it comes to mean immerse. I, I don't know where that comes from. Well, let me give you some insight. It all becomes mode. Mode becomes the biggest argument for them. Yeah, it's the mode of baptism. It's not the um, it's not the gifts. Everything is thrown out with the bathwater here, including the baby, uh, because it it's all about the way in which one is baptized. Yeah, that's great because it's this it's this Romans six thing, right? That when they uh, descend with Christ into death, that has to be completely going under the water because like you said what matters is not the gift that's being given what matters is this memorial representation of it and and whether some folks do the same thing with the lord's supper right as this memorial meal um as as some would say uh but yeah it's just the mode what 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 is actually happening uh doesn't actually matter and luther even said you know if you if you have the ability to completely immerse Sure, it's a better picture, but it's irrelevant because it's the word attached to the water. The amount of water means nothing. This is why you can baptize a preemie baby who's in the NICU with an eyedropper. Exactly. Even in one of the earliest documents of the church outside the scriptures, the Didache from the second century, uh, makes it very clear in chapter 7, uh, that when it says concerning baptism, baptize this way. Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in cold living water, right? So like a river, like the Jordan. Running, running, running water. water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot, baptize in cold water and warm. But if you have neither, pour out water thrice upon the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning, it's very clear that Whoever wrote the Didache, it's called the Didache, the Twelve Apostles, but uh, extremely old, the first catechism of the church. Whoever, four pastors. Four pastors, right. A, a, a catechism. Uh, a manual. A manual, right, on on running and governing and serving the church, is that you are, yeah, sure, ideally baptized in cold, running water in a river. That's great. But if not, then baptize in whatever water you have. And if not, it says right there, pour water on the head three times. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Didache. And the reason I say that is is because this guy, especially from the Southern Baptist evangelical world, they are not going to recognize anything except for that Bible. Right. So what they do is they really think that Jesus walked in the time of their grandmother. 
So all they're doing is just putting together, they don't realize the vast wealth that we have of church history. The reason I get kind of passionate about this is because this was extremely helpful for me in moving out of my heterodoxy. We have what Jesus says. We have what the apostles say. But then those apostles had disciples, and those disciples wrote things down. And they lived, and let's change the analogy, they lived close to the vine. You know what I'm saying about yeah, that? Yeah. So healthy eating, go as close to the vine as you can. McDonald's, as much as I love it, it's nowhere near the vine. Yeah. So if you want to understand baptism, if you want to understand the sacrament of the altar, go back and look at what John the Apostle's disciples were saying because they knew John, right. who knew Jesus. So you go back and look at what they say. Not that they're, uh, like they didn't get, um, you know, off the rails on some things. But my goodness, in regard to baptism, this is what they thought about baptism. Exactly what you just read. Whereas this guy here, however many uh, millennia later, he's saying that it has nothing to do with tradition. Yeah, and he's totally wrong. Because it is a command of the Lord for us to receive forgiveness of sins, to be baptized into Christ. Because God wants to give us the gifts. Because God wants to give us the gifts. But what he does not understand is what tradition is. Tradition is the handing on from one to another, just like catechesis is. That tradition is handing over from one generation to the next. The church, the scriptures, the sacraments are handed from one generation to the next by this way of living and abiding in the church and in the catechesis of the church. Of course it's about tradition. But again, not superimposing whatever he thinks tradition means onto the word. Well, in his defense, he is following right along with the Baptist mantra. I mean, the the Southern Baptists, as it were, they they started as an Anabaptist movement. They were totally against uh, what God did in infant baptism, totally against it. And so it was thought that you needed to be baptized after making a decision that since a little baby doesn't make a decision, then he can't be saved and his baptism is invalid. Yeah, and I think that's one of their, of course, issues as well, is that you can't baptize an infant because that infant can't make a decision or have faith because all of those things in their mind are intellectual and academic. Uh, that's, that's, I guess that's in the same vein of why uh, discipleship can't be a class Uh, because they're making it academic. But it is a command. It's what the Bible commands for us to do. Jesus himself, with his authority, told us to do it. Now, I I want you to see, there are two things that we practice in this church. We call them ordinances. Uh, Basically, there are two things that Jesus ordained. One was the Lord's Supper. Remember, he told his disciples, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it. Well, that's a command. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we, we partake of the Lord's Supper. All right, case in point. Again, taking something that's gospel and turning it into law. Right. And you probably know more about this ordinance language than I do. But also, again, that's just not true. A, that's not the only two things Jesus ever commanded right? Whatever sins you bind on earth are bound in heaven. Whatever sins you loose on earth are loosed in heaven. Um, and that's, again, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he's not 
gone. Of course, like he says, he's present till the end of the age. But also, the church still marches on. And so when James says for the pastors to go and anoint the sick, does that not count? When Paul says to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to do so in an orderly fashion, when the apostles say that there should be orderly worship, when Peter says to baptize, do these things mean nothing? I mean, they're part of the scriptures, so I'm sure that they do. But do these things mean nothing? So, but again, that's not the only two things Jesus ever commanded. But with this ordinance language, I don't know much about that. Well, this is the the, the word that has come about uh, to eradicate sacraments. I mean, in the especially okay. in the Southern Baptist world, I mean, you do not hear the word sacrament. Nobody knows what that what that is. Even though, my goodness. What do we teach our catechumens? We teach that a sacrament, and this goes back to what? Augustine? There's a physical thing with a spiritual promise or, or grace uh, connected to it where God commands it. Right. What was the forbidden fruit that hung upon the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life? That was a sacrament. It was a physical thing. It was commanded by God. You can eat this one. You can't eat this one over here. And what did it give them? It gave them what the Lord promised it would give them. That's great. That's good. And you see many sacraments throughout the scriptures. I mean, sure. what was the bronze snake upon the pole? Yeah, that's great. Or, it was a physical thing. God commanded it. There was something attached to a physical thing. Yeah, circumcision. Circumcision the Passover. is... Passover. <laughs> exactly. It's not like the Lord is doing a new thing here when he picks up the cup and he takes the bread and says, take, drink, take, eat. That's good. Yeah, I guess there is kind of this like subtle, low-key Marcionism in, in some of these Protestant churches where they just kind of throw out the Old Testament because those were, again, dominical commands only uh, that speak nothing of Christ. And so we can just kind of toss that out <laughs> along with the baby in the bathwater. Yeah, water, exactly. And exactly. we don't need that to teach us about Christ. We also baptize. Where did that come from? From the command that Jesus gave to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to know something. When it, comes to, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I mean, it's worship. I mean, we, I've, I've said this before, and, and, and you've, if you've ever been to one of our Lord's Supper services, we're having the Lord's Supper in a, in a few weeks, and, and I always look forward to it because of the, of, the, of the focus that it gives. Can I just tell you this? Baptism is worship. It is. I mean, it's not just something we do. It's not just an ordinance. It's a command by Christ. But also, and I put in your notes, the second reason we baptize, it was practiced by the early church. All right, when I got to this point in the sermon, I was pretty excited when he said the early church because it was making my point about uh, what I said earlier regarding, yeah, okay, let, let's look at what the early church, they were the closest to the vine, so let's look and see how the early church practiced baptism. But of course, it's only what is contained within the Bible. It doesn't go anything past the Bible. So when he says early church, he means like the nascent church of the Acts. Uh, correct. Interesting. Correct. Interesting. That's as far as he goes. And then my point is, from the Pauline epistles, he's going to jump in his mind, all the way to when he was in that discipleship class. Like that that whole span of history is just selected and deleted. And the reason I, I make a big deal about that is, 
when I was looking, I have the exact same teaching that 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 this man is talking about. Exact same, word for word. Right. And and to my shame, I've taught it to sure. others. Yeah. Right. So when I was wrestling through what the Bible actually says about baptism, it was a struggle in my mind. Do you remember how uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about the exact same thing? And Nicodemus struggles to understand this. I mean, he actually asked the question, how can this be? And Jesus said, and it's a kind of a low-grade insult, you're a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Hey, Mr. Mensa. Hey, Mr. Smarty Pants, you don't know these things? And so I understand exactly where Nicodemus was coming from, and I said, how can these things be? Well, the thing that broke the tie for me, and that you had the biblical narrative on one side, and then you had uh, the, the ordinance teaching on the other that we're listening to, what broke the tie was looking at what the early church fathers said about baptism how they would call it the labor of regeneration, how they would say that this is what ushers you into the mystery of the Holy Trinity and into the church. Noah's ark is just like the church, and what brings you into this ark is the waters of holy baptism. I mean, it blew my mind, especially being an adult, having learned that your baptism really, it meant nothing. But then realizing it's, it's everything. Yeah, it's really sad when, you know, when we stand on the shoulders of giants, these, these church fathers of ours, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but then, you know, we do things like this and just poop on their shoulders and, and completely disregard everything they've ever said and done. And of course, not that we're beholden to them. Uh, a lot of them, you know, uh, were an error on certain things, um, but to completely just disregard them as though they didn't happen, or as though, like you said, the church stopped at the Book of Acts and started in whatever it is, 18th, 19th, 20th century. Um, it's just living with your hand in front of your face, and it's really sad um, to not realize the gravity of what the church actually is, and and how big that is. Well, that's interesting you say that because uh, I think of an organization. I They were big a dozen years ago, but it was it's called Acts 29. I'm sure that they're still out there. But what they do is they fund uh, and help organize and give leadership to church plants all over, all over the country okay. and most likely all over the world. Sure. But it makes this point. Acts 28 ends Acts, and so they're going to pick it up with Acts 29, and again, they're going to jump from all over these, they're going to jump from these giants that you say that we should be standing on their shoulders, and they're going to completely discredit them and just pick up right here, right here today. I also think one other thing, too, uh, with, with, his, with his language, um, on a little bit different note, uh, is this language of worship that he uses? Yeah, see, and this this goes back to the point that you made earlier. Because they don't have the sacraments, they've elevated worship to right. a sacrament. Right, and it's just it's just interesting because it's just at least at this point in in, in the modern context or in the postmodern context, it doesn't mean anything. It's an old English word uh, that doesn't it doesn't mean anything anymore. Like if you look at old missals of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it'll have things in there like. Uh, Mary, we worship you, right? That does not mean that they're 
uh, offering Mary uh, the the worship to use that word that's offered to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's an old English word that you know would be the equivalence of the the dulia, right? That which is offered to the saints. Uh, that you know, in some aspect, we we would agree with. Um, but it doesn't mean anything. So to say that we to say that baptism is worship or that the Lord's Supper is worship, it's just an empty statement that doesn't mean anything, which is great because then you can fill it with whatever you want it to mean. Well, let me demonstrate for you uh, what worship is. Okay. And you uh, describe to our listeners exactly what I'm doing. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. All right. You are standing in the middle of the room with your arms stretched out and your eyes closed, looking up in the corner of the room and swaying back and forth. And that's worship? That's worship. Huh. I'm worshiping right now. That doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly just kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Nothingness is what that is right Yeah, there. it's just a void. And, and that's again, that's great. Because then I can fill that void with whatever I want. So if if worship is this, if worship is that, right? You're your own pope. I'm my own pope, uh, and and we can twist the scriptures whatever way we want. I mean, the disciples got this when they were listening to Jesus tell them, "Hey, listen, this is what you're to do. Here's your mission: go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded." When you look at how the early church began, you see it. Peter gets up right after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. Peter gets up, preaches this sermon. The Bible says 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And we'll baptize about 20, close to 20 tonight at Shadow Lake. I mean, I'm pumped. I'm so excited. I, I can't imagine if I were to tell you this morning, hey, you need to come tonight. We're baptizing 1,300 people. I mean, they baptized 3,000. Obviously, it was something they knew. I mean, Peter could have said, oh, my gosh, we didn't expect this. I, but Peter was like, you know what? Jesus said, go and share the gospel. And when people get saved, what do we do? You baptize them. I don't think that's in the biblical record at all. I don't even know what that means, man. What, getting saved? Yeah, when you get saved. Like, what does that even mean? Well, you've heard of get right or get left, right? That's the rapture theory, right? You either get right, get your sure. life right, or you get left behind. Well, sure. I don't even know what that means. Get, get saved. saved. Yeah. So you get saved, and then you get baptized. Right. You get saved is inviting Jesus into your heart. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that I always find... As if find, Jesus wants anything to do with that nasty heart of yours. Sure, sure. And that's the thing I always find confusing with these folks that know the scriptures so much better than me. Right is, of, of course, they have clearly affixed themselves outside of the historic church and especially outside of our confession. But all these things are not in the Bible, right? If we're using dominical commands, Jesus never says, whatever, ask me into your heart or then go get baptized and then make sure you get baptized again. And I don't know if that's, you know, you said they started as an Anabaptist sect. So that's not in there. You don't have folks getting baptized twice. You never have that. You never have folks asking Jesus into their heart. But then there's another problem. What do they do with Peter who says that baptism now saves you? 
I don't know, man. If you can make baptism mean immersion, you can make save mean whatever you want it to be. So get saved then becomes this noetic oh, yeah. experience okay. in one, one's mind, i.e. making a decision. And, and this is, this is the, the terminology that I was taught. The first step of obedience after becoming a Christian is to get baptized. Hmm. Interesting. No, it's more than interesting. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. It's interestingly terrible and terribly interesting. But, I mean, like, you, that was a good word you used, noetic, right? So it's this this noetic, esoteric stuff that that you have to, like, I'm not going to say it's, it's Gnostic because that's overused, but that you have to, like, ascend uh, to this, like, higher level of thinking so that, what, my 15-month-old kid's not a Christian? Mm-mm. Because she hasn't... So that's it. My 15-month-old kid is not a Christian because mm-hmm. she's not been able to academically and intellectually attain no or that kid down the road in a vegetative state in a wheelchair uh who can't think past a two-year-old level he's so so he's he's just damned he's sol we just trust him and her to the mercies of god should they pass from this veil of tears before making a decision such a sad way to live and it's a wrong picture of who god is yeah definitely it, it, it is absolutely unbelievable to think that this God is like this. This, this God is looking more and more like Molech than he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, I guess it makes sense when you can just make anything mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, and, you know, and then instead of acknowledging that God is made, instead of acknowledging that man is made in God's image, it's great because like these gods, like 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 Malek, we can, we can make them in our own image, right? I mean, that's, that's the Christian thing, is that every other religion that's ever existed makes their gods in their own image, whereas Christianity is the only religion that, religion that confesses that man is made in God's image. All we do is just slip back into heathenism and paganism when we make God in our own image. Here's another one. Uh, Philip, great preacher, Acts chapter 8. Bible said he was preaching, and God told him, he said, listen, Philip, I want you to, to, to go south. That's all God told him. Just go south. And, and so Philip did. And, and, and Philip came beside a chariot that had a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch. He was heading out of Jerusalem back to Gaza, and, and he was on his way home, and, and he was reading. Philip came up beside the chariot and heard that he was reading in the book of Isaiah. Ask him, hey, you understand what you're reading? And he didn't, and so Philip gets in the chariot with him, and the Bible says that he shared Christ with him, and the eunuch was saved. And the Bible says that, obviously, in in sharing what Philip did, he told him about baptism, because the Bible says that the eunuch said, hey, there's some water over there. I need to get baptized. And he was. Evangelicals have no clue what to do with the Ethiopian eunuch. How so? The Ethiopian eunuch... Obviously, he's reading the book of Isaiah. Right. Philip does come to him because the Lord uses means. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, you know, what? who is he talking about? Who, who, who is the, the subject, really, of this passage? Right. Does he speak about himself or does he speak of another? And Philip is able to say, well, I'm glad you asked. He's speaking of another. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
the point here that he said is that he got saved. So, right. so he's in the chariot or the chariot stopped or however that's working out. He gets saved there. And then Philip has to teach him about baptism, that it's the first step of obedience after becoming a Christian. And as a result of that, he says, okay, there's some water right there, and I hope it's enough to immerse. My goodness, if it's just a little waddy, that's just enough for Philip to, to pick up a, you know, a handful and dump it on his head three times. Man, it doesn't count. He's got to get back into that chariot, uh, sopping wet to go back to Ethiopia. The point is, is that this Ethiopian eunuch, I mean, to have a scroll of Isaiah was was a pretty big deal. Obviously, he's what we would call R&I. Are you familiar with R&I? Rich and influential. He, he's, <laughs> he's got some street cred to have an entire scroll of Isaiah. Okay, yeah, definitely. But he's, but he's read it enough to understand that baptism is connected to salvation. It's not subsequent to, it's connected to, Baptism now saves you, as Peter says. Yeah. And so obviously we know that this guy had a procedure done to him that allowed him to be around the king's harem. We could totally trust him in that regard. Sure. He goes to the temple where he's looking, so to speak, for God. He is wanting to be a worshiper of the one true God, but what prevents him from being able to participate in temple worship, not only his his race, but also the fact that he's got this deformity. Right. So here he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Is there is there anything, my, my race, the procedure done to me, my association with, uh, with kings and queens and royal courts, is there anything that prevents me from being saved? and being in the kingdom of God. And Philip is able to say to him, no, nothing. Yeah, that's well said. That's insightful. And I wonder, this Ethiopian eunuch, if he's reading to himself, he's obviously learned, but if he has a scroll of Isaiah, I mean, he doesn't have Torah, he doesn't have Genesis through Deuteronomy. I mean, so what prevents him from being baptized is a great question because he doesn't have the entirety of the scriptures, right? I mean, how are we sure that he's reached such a noetic level to be able to be baptized? Not to mention if there's enough water in the first place. But if he's only got Isaiah, that he's able to get saved. But my point is, you noticed how, as you said earlier, we're just we're just playing uh, playing with words here, and we're we're inserting things into the text. He inserts that after leading him to Christ and the Ethiopian eunuch saying the sinner's prayer, so to speak, inviting Jesus into his heart, now he's got to say, okay, now let's begin to talk about baptism. Let's follow through with this decision that you've made and let's get baptized. And thus, as a result of that, the Ethiopian eunuch says, oh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm down with that. In this guy's mind, these things are separated. Step one, then step two. You got JV Christian, you got varsity Christian. The Ethiopian eunuch, he doesn't see it that way. Hmm. It's it's all combined. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what he also misses, you know, Luke, the author of the gospel that bears his name in Acts, he's he's always very intentional about about catechesis. That they were on the way 
right? Just like when Jesus met with his disciples on the way, that Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch are on the way, that, that this is language of catechesis, that he's being catechized in the faith. But that doesn't end as well after baptism. That keeps going, that the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is now baptized into the one true faith, and that catechesis still continues. You go a little further in the book of Acts, and you find where Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi. They were in jail, chained up in the very pit of the jail. And the Bible says an earthquake happened. They were singing. They were praising about midnight. Earthquake happened. Their chains fall off. The doors of the cell open up. And the jailer gets nervous because he's like, I'm about to die here for all these people to escape. My life's over. And so the Bible said he was ready to commit suicide. And he went to Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas said, wait a minute, stop. And and so he went to Paul and Silas and said, listen, what must I do to be saved? And and the Bible gives a great account of of Paul and Silas witnessing to him. The jailer gets saved. He goes to his household. His family gets saved. And what does the Bible say? They were all baptized. Again, you have the two-step process. It's like country line dancing. It's just two steps. What's the two steps? Get saved, get baptized. Get saved, get baptized. Yeah, I think two things. One, uh, I think that when evangelicals do things like this, like, for example, use the book of Acts, it totally throws Lutherans through a loop. Because I think that chiefly, none of us know the Bible, but especially not the book of Acts. The book of Acts and I guess 2 Corinthians too, it's just, it's totally off our purview. So there's some chief text that a lot of Lutherans do know or that laity ordained, but... By and large, it's whether he knows it or not, it's a good trick because if, if if you want to confuse, you know, people that don't know the Bible, they probably don't know Acts because there's so much in there and you can do whatever you want with it. But second of all, uh, I think it's interesting that he uses the Philippian jailer uh, because the fact that the entire household gets baptized. And for us in the modern context where you have maybe a kid because China says so, and then maybe two if there is an accident, you won't, you don't think much about that. But for this guy, his household is, is of course, his family, his children, his servants, his servants' children. But the assumption is that, that, is that they're, of course, children being baptized. And the fact as well is that, again, with this, like you said, this noetic understanding, you know, he got baptized. And then, of course, he is now in charge of catechizing his family. But, you know, how can we be sure that they were on the same level as he was? I would tell you what this Southern Baptist would say. You know, even though it's the Philippian jailer's household... And anybody with two brain cells can understand that, like you're saying, this was not just like him and his wife and his mother. <laughs> you know, like this was a, an extended family. You think about all the passages in the scriptures, you know, I go and I prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Meaning, like, you know, the, the son goes to, the, to the, the would-be bride who he's betrothed to, and he says, I'm going to go back to my daddy's house and build on to my daddy's house, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to get you, and we're all going to live there together, and we're going to build on, and it's going to be great. It's going to be a huge family. Yeah, it's a patriarchal estate. It's not just him and his wife and his mother-in-law. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's well put. Yeah, and so here you've got uh, his whole household, being baptized but if you were to say if you if you were to say well look i mean isn't this give credence to infant baptism no because the text doesn't say yeah it's an argument from silence they would say sad 
It is sad. Again, all you see is just the way the new church began was from what Jesus had commanded the disciples. Go and make disciples. Be a witness, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we baptize? Jesus commanded it. The early church, they practiced it. And, and here's the third. And we're going to camp out on this one a little bit. To communicate a message. To communicate a message. Before we hear what message he's going to say is communicated in baptism, what would you say? What message is communicated in baptism? That you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That you are united with Christ. That your old Adam has been drowned in baptism. And that the new man is now able to daily emerge and live before God in righteousness and purity forever, uh, that your sins have been washed away and that you are now united with Christ. As Paul says, you are in Christ. You are a new creation with Christ. I mean, there's so many things that we can say about it, all these promises that baptism gives, and I just had the sneaking suspicion he's not going to say a word about it. What? And that's, <laughs> you know? and that's not even to mention. I mean, that's just strictly from the New Testament scriptures. That's not even to mention all the things that the Old Testament shows us in type and shadow about baptism. And we could go on for days and days and days about the gifts that baptism gives. I mean, Luther's small catechism doesn't even scratch the surface of it, right? This, the, the, the children's book of the catechism that Luther wrote doesn't even begin to get at it. There's so much depth in the gifts that baptism gives, and I just don't expect his message to teach us about that. No, no, not at all. Well said. I don't think I could add anything more to what, what you have just said except to say that I think about all of the listeners. When it comes to the Bible, they have at least read the first chapter of the Bible. Is that fair? You mean Genesis 1? Yeah. Okay. I mean, everybody's going to start there, and then sure. they, they kind of peter out sure. in you the know, beginning, at some point. Da, 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 in, da. Right. So here's a picture of baptism in the very first couple of verses of the Bible. Right. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got God. You've got the Word of God. You've got nothing but chaos and darkness, and you have water. Right, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And so just like when Jesus would say, you can't be born again without the Spirit and water, mm -hmm. here it is in Genesis chapter 1, Spirit and water. And what comes forth from this swirling, dark chaos? Creation. A new birth. Yeah, yeah, rebirth, new creation. And that's the thing, too, is that this all happens, at least in creation, on the first day when God says, let there be light, right? Which, of course, is Sunday. Uh, and then, of course, we have in the resurrection of Christ, the new creation. So that now in Christ, as Paul says, we are a new creation. Which is the eighth day. Which is the eighth day. This is all eighth day language, right? And Bab this is why our fonts are, many of them have eight sides eight upon sides. them. Right. Young boys in the Old Testament were circumcised on the eighth day. Even... Eight souls were saved in Noah's exactly, flood. Exactly, right. Uh, eight souls were on the ark. Um, that's why even for a long time in the early church, Christians were baptized on the eighth day after they were born. We're eighth-day people. This is the new creation. Um, and and as, as the, the discourse with Nicodemus teaches as well, that this is a, uh, a new birth or, or being born again from above. Baptism is a picture. Maybe you've heard us say that. It really is a, a picture, a, a symbol. It communicates something specific. Let me give you an example. I'm going to take off my wedding band. Everybody see this? I'm married. My wife's name's Ray. 
I'm sorry, I've got a little bit of vomit coming up in the back <laughs> of my throat here. Have you heard this analogy of the wedding ring before? No. You've never heard this? No. Oh, my goodness. I've I will got let you, too I'll, many ulcers as it is. I don't, have, I don't oh, have time to listen to these guys. We've done an entire Pluck Chicken podcast, and I don't know how many, how many references I found to the wedding ring. But it, wow. I probably found, I can't remember now, five or six different pastors using this analogy. This is classic symbolism for baptism talk. Okay. Yeah, but, I get the gist of what he's saying, but I'm sure he'll go on here to, to explain. But, you know, I can see your wedding ring. You yep. can see my wedding ring, right? Especially for these for these folks that don't think baptism does or means anything besides whatever vague symbolic message like I can't see that, you know, you know, we confess that there is a, a transcendental reality when you are baptized, um, that you are marked with the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart, marking you as one redeemed by the crucified, that there is this transcendental reality that God looks at you and, and, and sees his baptized child, that your guardian angel looks at you and sees whom to protect and that the demons look at you and see a target of whom to attack. So there is this transcendental reality, but other than that, I don't, I don't see how that symbol shows itself because it's not like a wedding ring. I, I can't see that you were baptized, of course, except by the baptized life. And the you are so about. stupid, man. You, it's the wedding ring. It's all about the wedding ring. This is why you don't let me talk. I'm married. I wear this wedding band. Now, I'm taking it off, and I'm going to put it right here. Question, am I still married? Yes. You know why? This is just a symbol. That's all this is. When she and I got married, our pastor didn't say, all right, this ring right here will make you married. No. We exchanged the rings to each other and, and committed to wear it as a symbol of something. Now, you know what this ring symbolizes? It symbolizes that I made a vow to live with a woman and to be faithful only to her till death alone shall part us. I mean, in any wedding ceremony, that's the heart of the ceremony. That's the marriage, is the commitment that the two people are making, the vows that you're making. And the ring, it's just an outward symbol. Now, let me take that a little bit further. Let's say I took my ring and I said, you know what? I don't want to wear my ring anymore. I'm just going to, I'm going to put it in my closet. I'm going to, I'm going to put it on a shelf and I'm not going to wear it anymore. Now, I hope that somebody would say, why? I mean, I could say, well, it's just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. Well, okay, it is just a symbol, but it does mean something. I mean, in fact, if I wasn't not willing to wear it, then I need to be questioned whether I'm really committed in my marriage. Am I ashamed to be married? Am I embarrassed to let anybody know? Baptism... It is a, is a symbol, an outward symbol. But let me tell you what. Here's how it's different from this wedding band. This wedding band is pretty sacred to me. Yes, I wear it. I, I, was, I spoke to my wife on the day of, of my wedding and told her I will wear that. I made a commitment to wear this as an outward symbol of our love for each other. When you're baptized, it's not just a, a ritual, not, not just a symbol. It's pretty sacred. Don't you feel like you understand baptism just a little bit better now? No. What? No. I mean, no, it's just wrong. Everything about that is just wrong. Uh, first of all, 
The scriptures are very clear that God desires lawful marriage and the begetting of children. The scriptures are in nowhere clear that wedding rings are a part of that at all. Wedding rings are great. I wear one. You wear one. There's no problem with it. They were blessed at my wedding and, and it is sacred to me as well. But that's not in the scriptures. That's something that we've done that I think is great and there's no issue with it. Uh, but yes, the wedding ring is a symbol. But what, what's happening is that he's superimposing that onto baptism and using this made-up analogy to say that baptism is the same way. Whereas Jesus makes it very clear in the scriptures that baptism is not a symbol. Everywhere that baptism is spoken of, the word symbol doesn't show up. Uh, you want to know who officiated my wedding? Billy Graham. This guy right This here. guy? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's crazy. Very influential in my life. Man. <laughs> I'm just going to go back to not talking. It's a pretty, pretty important part of, of what it symbolizes. Now, does it save you? No. And you're going to hear that clearly and you're going to see it in Scripture this morning. That's where a lot of confusion comes in with baptism. I mean, okay, we know Jesus commands it. Uh, it looks like they practice it in the early church. That's pretty obvious in the book of Acts. But does it make you a Christian? I mean, is it just a symbol or is it more? Well, again, I, I believe the Bible is clear on that. Because here's the message behind that symbol. First of all, I put three things in your notes. I just want you to note, first of all, it, it, it communicates or symbolizes or pictures what Jesus did to save me. You look at 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, if you're in the book of Mar Matthew, just turn to 1 Corinthians. Go right through the Gospels. You'll come to Acts, Romans, and then right to 1 Corinthians. I want you to see this in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to the church there. And notice what he says. It could be a second to turn there. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. I want to start with verse 1. He says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. Now, what's the good news he's talking about? The gospel. That's what good news is. I mean, that's the, the reference it is. He's, he's talking about, hey, listen, I want to remind you about the gospel that I preached to you. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. Verse 2 it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. And so here in verse 3, he lays it out. I passed on to you what was most important and what has been passed on to me. Again, what is he talking about here? The gospel. He just said it. So he said, I passed on to you what was most important and what has been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. Now, that's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. If you ask somebody, you know, how they became a Christian, they put their faith and trust that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It should have been us on the cross. The cross is a great picture of substitution. It is. Jesus substituted himself in our place. He never sinned. Never. He was sinless. 
And so when he was punished, he wasn't punished for anything he did. He was perfect. He was punished for our sins. And so the gospel is that, is that, is that understanding of that Jesus died for our sins. And, and the Bible says in this passage that he rose from the grave. I mean, he was, he was crucified, he was buried, according to the Scriptures, and he rose from the grave, according to the Scriptures. I mean, that's, that's the gospel right there. Jesus is who he said he was. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. Now, this is what requires a discerning ear. I got really no problem with what he just said. He's right. That is the gospel. Yes. Oh, yes, that is the gospel. Right? Absolutely. But what he's going to, again, as we've said before, he separates the gospel from baptism in that one believes the gospel and then one gets baptized, get saved, get wet. This is what's supposed to happen. He does not understand that the Lord is actually delivering to the one getting baptized through the waters of holy baptism, all that Christ did on the cross and in the tomb. Exactly. Well said. You weren't there. Right. Right. You you were not there. Mary was there. John was there. You weren't there. And so you do not have access to Christ. You are, as Paul says, severed. You are cut off from Christ. You do not have access, but God has given you access in his church, in his sacraments, in his preached word in in the absolution in baptism in the lord's supper you have access to christ you get the goods in church right in the church catholic and and in her sacraments you get the goods you 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 have access to christ and him crucified descended into hell raised on the third day ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of of the father it's interesting to listen to pastors and we've reviewed their sermons here on the plucked chicken they get people to make a decision for Jesus, and that is all great. But then, a little bit later on, we got to get these same people now to get baptized. And they will. I've even heard pastors say, you know, we've had over a thousand people make decisions for Jesus and get saved, but we've only had 150 people get baptized. And they will say, we, we really need to get those baptismal numbers up because that is the first step of obedience after becoming a Christian. So anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that obviously, even though, again, I really don't have any problem with what he just said here, he's going to have a problem with pneumatology, is he not? He's going to have a problem with how the Holy Spirit works through physical things, because he does not see that baptism comes by means of both word attached to water. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, he's just he's just quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians and giving very clear what the gospel is. But he also said at the very beginning, baptism doesn't save you. This is a clear change yeah. in what Peter says. Yes, it is. And a couple things. First of all, again, we have in the gospels times where either the evangelist or Jesus says, this has saved you. Uh, it's not that your faith has made you well. It's your faith has saved you or the woman touched the hem of his garment and she was saved or the people came by and wanted to, t to touch Jesus so that they might be saved. Okay, so we've just taken this English word now, just like we could do with 
worship or tradition and stuff inside it anything we want it to mean. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there's this trend that sometimes sneaks into Lutheranism about um, there only being the word and your response to that and anything else is just an add-on. Anything else like baptism or the Lord's Supper or anything else is just an add-on that got tacked on and it's nice because we have it, but it's not it's not the it's not really the real deal. It's not the main point. The main point is the gospel and all these other things are separate or additional to that. Now, how does that relate to baptism? All right, here it is. Baptism, again, is a symbol. It's the symbol of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. Here's the death and burial. That's the picture of us taking somebody under the water. It's the picture of Jesus being buried after he was crucified on the cross. I mean, it was, a, it was essential that he died for our sin, right? And so when, when you see a person baptized, it's picturing the gospel that Jesus died and was buried for our sins. And then when you see someone br- bring them back up, when you see Kyle, while I go in this video, he took Sugus. Got it right. Okay. I was hoping I wouldn't mess that up. When he took Sugus under the water, I mean, he didn't leave him there. I mean, you saw him go totally under. He was gone, disappeared, and then boom, he brings him back up. What is that picture? Just what we just read. The death and burial of Christ and the resurrection. All of that is symbolic of what the gospel means. Okay, but I really don't need a symbol for that, do I? I mean, I've got the words that clearly tell me about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of that add-on language, is that it's just kind of, eh, it's here, and it's for your benefit. And like you said earlier, this is that whole thing with the mode. That's all that matters is just the mode, right? This Romans 6 language of being buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. It's just this image, this this icon of what Jesus did, uh, and it has nothing substantial attached to it. Also, it's this strange witness in itself to people that were there. But again, he's severed himself from Christ and from the body of Christ, uh, the church, not realizing that, you know, of course, in the early church, you were baptized, uh, unless like the Didache says you couldn't be, uh, by immersion, right? We have baptismal fonts from Ephesus and Jerusalem and Rome and Constantinople, and these were tubs. They were full immersion in the ground, right? Some are shaped like wombs, some are shaped like tombs, but they're full immersion. But you were baptized naked. You were butt naked. No one saw you get baptized. The faithful were in the sanctuary. You were in the baptistry. And if you were a woman, not even the pastor saw you because you were naked. So no one saw you get baptized. It, well, it, who saw the Ethiopian eunuch That's get a great point. Maybe all it was was the charioteer, unless well, there was some convoy that saw him. But that's a great point because no one saw him get baptized. So again, it's this new thing that you are making up about baptism, that it is now its own kind of witness to people around you of the gospel instead of letting it be what it truly is. That's what Jesus did. And again, when, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake it as a way of remembering what Jesus did for us. When you see a baptism, 
The reason it's worship is because you're seeing a picture of what Jesus did for us. He was crucified for our sins, buried in a tomb, rose from the grave. All of that is pictured in that baptism. That's why sprinkling doesn't make sense. You can't do that with sprinkling. Yeah, Vic. You can't do that with sprinkling. Yeah, I guess you can't do that with sprinkling. That's, I guess you could say that that's true. And that's the problem is that he has reduced things like Romans 6 uh, and whether or not he gets into Peter or Titus at all, I don't know. But things like Romans 6, he's reduced to only the mode and the form. Yeah, the symbol is more important than anything else. Because that's the whole thing is that it doesn't mean anything. Baptism doesn't mean anything. So the only important part of it is the form of it because it's just a symbol just like the lord's supper it doesn't mean anything it's not the body and blood of christ on the altar it's just a symbol so all that's important is that you just have the memorial meal by this dominical command let me tell you a story in our evangelical church when you say non-denom typically nine times out of ten it's just a southern baptist church okay and the way that our building was built we had a large stage up at the up at the front of the church and inside this stage was the baptistry so it was kind of like you probably don't remember the munsters but it was uh you know it was kind of like whoever lived under the steps there on the munsters i forget who maybe uh uncle festus or something like that anyway don't worry don't worry don't worry i know you don't know we would remove the portion of the of the staging and we would fill the baptistry up and it was you know the mode and the symbol were more important than anything so it was a you know it was a tub so to speak that came up um, you know the water level um, just above your belly button and really when the people in the uh, you know we would say the nave they could only see you from like maybe chest or I'm sorry about shoulder high because okay. the stage was so much higher. Okay, gotcha. The point is, there was a woman in our congregation. She was uh, in the neighborhood of 80-something years old. And it, it became known to me that she had never been baptized. So she never took that first step of obedience. Never. And so she, she requested to be baptized. I was like, this is fantastic. But this is a frail woman. And, you know, our elders sat down and we thought through, how are we going to get her up into that baptistry? Because she had to go all the way in that water. Right? She's in a wheelchair. So the wheelchair had to go in the water too. And, well, you go ahead and tell your story. <laughs> and so, you know, we had a handicap lift to get up on the stage, but then it was, man, we're going to have to have uh, guys help her in, help her out. This is going to be really, really difficult. Well, when you're driven by the mode and you're driven by the symbol, my goodness, we probably would have had to construct something that they used to carry the pharaohs on or something to get her down into the water. I said, this is ridiculous. We just pour water on her head. It will be fine. We do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I remember going round and round with our elders about this, that it this symbol does not matter. It's what God does in the baptism. That's not good. You were already Lutheran. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Latent Lutheran. And so 
finally they realize there there is no physical way we can get her into this pool. Right. No way. Uh, and if you were to see it, I know I've not done a great job of uh, explaining it, uh, but there were no handrails, there was no ramps, there was nothing. So anyway, the point is, is that sure enough, we had a pitcher of water up there, and I baptized her in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and poured water on her three times, and it was a Christian baptism. Absolutely. Whereas what he is saying, if he were to go to somebody in the hospital, who, they're not coming to your church. They're on their deathbed. Pastor, right. I've never been baptized. Will right. you baptize me? He would have no problem whatsoever baptizing this guy with just uh, poured water on his head. He would have no problem with that. But yet, somehow or another, everybody else, if it's possible, the symbol, the mode, that's what's king. Yeah, well, on that, it's interesting you bring up, you know, the architecture of, of your church. Um because that is something that does matter, right? Because everything teaches, everything catechizes, so does architecture. And so it's very very clear uh, what, the, what the church teaches by what the architecture is, or at least it should be. So in churches that are built in any of the historic manners that they could be built, right? The baptismal font is either somewhere else in a baptistry, like it was with these churches where you were baptized naked and privately. Uh, it's somewhere else. Uh, it's at the very back of the church, or it's maybe in the middle of the church, and then even sometimes up towards the front of the church. But the idea is that this architecture teaches that you are you are baptized. That's how you enter into the church. Uh, if if the church is a hospital, then then baptism is uh, that little bracelet you get when you go in, right? That gets you admission to the hospital. You spend your life in the nave, in the pews, hearing the word, and your life is a pilgrimage to that altar, right? But if a church is not built that way, if a church is not built in that mode. Mm. It doesn't undermine the veracity of that baptism, the Word of God, or that sacrament. I think about the architecture of the church that I was the, the pastor of. The baptismal font was, was covered up. It was hidden. You would never know that it was there unless we were having a baptismal service that day. So again, as a part of the entryway into the church, uh, no, 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 no. It, it's just something that we tack on. And then, sadly enough... We have no altar, so there is no pilgrimage to the altar. We would actually set up temporary tables hmm. when we would have the sacrament of the altar, but then they would go away. The thing that is permanent is the pulpit. Hmm. So the Word of God is preached, and that's really what you have is four walls and a pulpit. I'll tell you another story. So when I'm hanging out now with Lutherans and befriending them, and they uh, are are interested in in my uh, conversion, I remember going to one Lutheran church, and a friend of mine, Kyle Meitzner. Have you ever heard that name? You're too young. Kyle Meitzner. He serves in Alaska now. But we went to this church, a Lutheran church, and we were probably there for an hour and a half. And he was just walking me through the architecture of the church hmm. and how, as you said, it's all pedagogical. It's all teaching yeah, constantly. Right. And I, I can't really explain the range of emotions. Yeah, you cry a lot. Were you in tears? I was upset, but I was angry huh? in that I had devoted my entire life to the church and didn't know... I didn't know this church. Interesting. This was foreign to me. 
So it was beautiful and lovely, and at the same time, I was very, I mean, I felt like I'd been robbed. Yeah, you were betrayed. Exactly. So then we went to my church, the same one with the baptismal in the floor and all of that, and here's what Kyle said. Again, we'd spent an hour and a half at this other Lutheran church going through everything. We come into where I pastored, and I was really excited to show him this. These were his words. Nice drum set. That speaks volumes, I guess. Yeah, it did. And then at that point, it was like, what are we doing? Right. Because the Bible doesn't say to build a church in this or that way. And of course, we have freedom in that. Gothic or neo-Gothic, American Gothic, that's not the only way to build a church. But it does teach. It teaches very well, and it has for a long, long time. And these things matter. You know, so when I teach catechesis at my vicarage, I tell the kids, uh, when you're at my vicarage church, um, the the baptismal font and the altar, I guess you could say are a matching set, right? To make it clear pedagogically that they are connected. Um, they are uh, both uh, white concrete. And I always tell the kids that I, I would never suggest they do this, but if they drove a truck into the church and hit the baptismal font or hit the altar with that truck, they wouldn't move. The font wouldn't move and the altar wouldn't move because they're not optional. They are foundational to the church. They're not add-ons and they're, they're not options. They're not a table we can wheel in and out. They're not a tub that's plastic or glass that we can cover up or get out of the way. They are in the way. Funerals have to go around or over that font because it's in the way for a reason because that teaches something. Mm. Knowing that now, it breaks my heart. There was a Lutheran church here in town that um, had to close its doors for a number of different reasons. But the church, the evangelical slash Pentecostal church that bought the old Lutheran church, we were actually there getting some things out of the church. And the first thing that we heard was, the first thing that we've got to do is get a sledgehammer to that altar and to that baptismal font to make room for the praise team. Oh, may the saints have mercy. Does that hurt you? God have mercy. That's awful. I know. I know. All right, let's get back to him. Baptism, again, anytime it's mentioned in the New Testament, always is referring to immersion. Because it gives that picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, we've already made this point, but but is that true, Vic? No. Yes, it does give us that image of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Romans it 6. can. Yeah, it can. Right, exactly. If you do, which, so first of all, no. Baptism does not always mean full immersion. Does Wait not a second. Immersion. Didn't the Pharisees, weren't they baptizing their couches? So now they're taking their couches out and immersing them into the river? Right. No. Right. Yeah. So you baptize uh, couches and dishes and cups, Jesus says. Um, so no, it does not mean immersion. It means wash. But yes, if you would do immersion, yes, it would give you that, I would say, beautiful image uh, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's great. But in the same way with architecture, I'm not going to say that if you if you don't have a Gothic church that you're not Christian. If you don't have a, if a, a Neo-Gothic or American Gothic church that the uh, word and sacraments at your church are invalid uh, because then that's superseding the mode over the content, I guess. What I've heard Pastor Bruss say is that the smaller fonts where one is sprinkled 
were really a jab yeah. at the people who were saying what he's saying. Right. Is that it doesn't require full immersion. Right. So we, we have these moments in the church where, uh, especially with the Lutherans, where they say you have to do this or you can't do this. Don't tell that to a Lutheran. Exactly. And then Lutheran goes the opposite way. So when they say you have to immerse, the Lutherans go, the Lutherans went too far, but they went way in the other direction and said, nah, son, I can just spit on you and use as little water as possible, which is not ideal. But it was to make a point that it is not by mode. Or, or when some of the reformers did the fracture, the breaking of the bread at the altar, they did that to show that there was no blood inside. And while the scriptures do say that he took and broke the bread, right, which some historic confessions still do, like the Roman Catholic Church still breaks the bread on the altar, we don't do that. Um, most Lutherans don't break the bread uh, before the consecration because it is, yeah, kind of a jab saying that people did that to show that it wasn't the body and blood of Christ. In the same way that some Lutheran churches have smaller fonts as, yeah, a kind of a historic jab against these folks that said you had to immerse because, again, they're making the mode supersede the content or the gift. Go to chapter 6 of Romans. I want you to see the, the second part because... What this message of baptism pictures is not only what Jesus did, but it, it really speaks of what happened to you. Baptism is always after salvation. It's a testimony of what's already happened. If you listen to, to Kyle, he was asking Sugas, have you, have you, past tense, have you done this in the past? Have you accepted Christ in your heart as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. Will you commit to follow him? That was that commitment that began at salvation that continues, but it was, it was something that has already taken place. Yes, I made that commitment. So there is something there. I mean, we do have this bit of historic precedence in the church where, like where he was asking, have you done this? Have you done that? You know, we have historic precedence uh, in the church of catechizing adults before they were baptized. For example, with the Easter Vigil Liturgy, a major aspect of that is the newly baptized, right? The, the neophytes, those that are, that are now coming into the light. That is a big aspect where they've gone through, you know, in some places a year, two years, three years of catechesis and that you would catechize adults first. But then there's the distinction of that's not the way it was for everybody, that infants were baptized eight days after they were born. Right, that they took part in the new creation, and they weren't baptized again after they were catechized for three or four years. Right, because because again, these things are not separate. Right, the the sanctified life lived out of the Christian catechesis and the doctrine of the church are not separate; they're all together. But when you go to chapter six of Romans, it lays out really the the picture here of the symbols of baptism. Chapter five of Romans, Paul is is really explaining grace. Does a great job of talking about the gracious gift of God. And then you get down to chapter 6, verse 1, and he says this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? They were confused here, obviously. They listened to Paul talk about grace and were thinking, Hey, if God loves us the way we are, if we're covered in grace, that means I can do whatever I want to do. Notice how Paul answers this in verse 2. Of course not. 
Since we have died to sin, how can we still live in it? That really answers the question of a lot of people that you see that, that say that they're a Christian, and yet they're still, they're still living in sin. They're embracing sin. Sin is, is the characteristic of their lifestyle. There's no turning from that sin. Now, before we get into verse 3, let me ask you a question. If somebody came up to you this week and said, how did you become a Christian? How, how were you saved? Yeah, Vic, answer that. How did you become a Christian? Well, again, if the church is a hospital, you enter into the church by means of baptism. If, if the church is a hospital and the sacrament of the altar is the medicine of immortality, then baptism is that little bracelet they give you when you go in that gives you entrance to the hospital. You enter into the church through baptism. Again, that's what this liturgy of the church and the architecture of the church clearly teach. You you enter in to the faith, you enter into the church in baptism. And so the Holy Spirit is, is and this is what I'm sure he's going to miss out on, is his pneumatology is going to be all messed up. But the Holy Spirit gives you the goods that you have now been... <laughs> you you clearly you clearly are not saved that's fine man i don't even know what that word means anymore Here, here's the best way i believe to answer it is right out of the scripture you don't have to say well this is what my church says or this is what I, you know i think I, here's the best way to answer it quote ephesians 2 8 and 9 put your name in there i was saved by grace through faith I was saved by grace through faith. Now, that verse does not say, I was saved by grace through baptism. It doesn't. In fact, it goes on to say, listen, you're saved by grace through faith, yet not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not according to anything you've done because you would boast about it. Oh, this is so classic to me. Because what is the gift of God. It is baptism. And then along with that, he says, from the scriptures, you had nothing to do with it. Well, that totally destroys the argument that he's making. Right. He's making the point that you're saved through your own decision. Right. So he's using a proof text to undermine baptism when actually all it does is bolster what baptism is and does and how it is the grace of God delivered unto you. Yeah, which is interesting. Earlier, you said that they miss out on Sedes Doctrinae, right? That when we go through, whether it's Luther or any other dogmaticians, the churches often used Sedes Doctrinae. I think they do it all the time. I mean, they just call them proof texts, and they usually do it wrong. But I think they just cherry pick whatever that they want to use w without taking into account the full counsel of God. Right. I had a friend who was a missionary in China. She said that she ended up in an uh, underground church one time and the pastor was preaching circumcision because he started at Genesis and he was on Leviticus. He was preaching circumcision because he had not considered the full counsel of God. He'd not been taught and he'd clearly not gotten to anything like Galatians, for example, that he was just teaching whatever he thought the Christian faith was. Yeah, so they have their own sadist doctrina. They have their own proof texts. And they just use it without any catechesis or 
any formal instruction from any? the early church, not just the church in Acts, but the, the church as it uh, continued to grow and thrive and be persecuted for uh, the first century, second, third, fourth, so right. on. Right, yeah, and, and completely ignoring the way the scriptures have always been read and always been taught in the church Catholic until very, very recently. It's like you get to heaven and and because you were baptized, you get a high five because, hey, you did what was required. We said this all along. When you get to heaven, friend, you will know fully that you had nothing to do with you getting to heaven. It was all Jesus. The contradiction here is just uh, appalling to me. You had nothing to do with it. It was all Jesus, except for that decision that you made to accept him into your heart. Right, except for that decision that you made that you now make the hinge pin of your entire life and salvation. It was was on, yeah, the choice and the decision that you made, but yet it was all Jesus. Let's say say there is a situation where an eight-day-old baby comes in to be baptized. I mean, what a picture of not having anything to do with your salvation. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, too, is that yeah, right? I mean, obviously, he's totally spot on, right? You have nothing to do with your salvation, right? That is the, the clear grace of the gospel. But there is this strange contradiction. I don't know if, if he recognizes that or if that's something that's apparent to him. Well, free will. He's not going to talk about it in this sermon. I've heard him talk about it in others. You know, free will is just... Remember how we talked about how there's no sacrament and so uh, worship is elevated to sacramental level? Sure. Well, free will is right up there. You know, God is the one who saves. He's the one who does all the work. But I'll be doggone if that free will in man doesn't get in the way all the time. The Lutheran understanding of free will based on earthly things, right, as opposed to no free will based upon heavenly things. Right. This is why Luther wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. Right. They have no concept of that. Okay. They think that just because they can choose which pair of socks to put on in the morning, you can also choose Jesus. It's all the same. But mm-hmm. but yeah, but he's confessing that when you get to heaven, you will know that it was nothing that you did. Yeah, it just seems like a contradiction because because now, I mean, do I know that now? Because now I'm focusing everything that I think and am and breathe on my decision. So do I know that now or does it just become apparent when I get to heaven, whatever. But see, you know it now because you realize you had nothing to do with the gifts given to you in your baptism. You you already know this to be true, that it was God's grace because you didn't baptize yourself. God did it. He's the one who put a new heart in you. He's the one who forgave you of all of your sins. He's the one who gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You didn't pick these things up at Costco. You didn't do this. You know it now. I don't have to wait until I get to heaven. Right. Just burns me still. Let me tell you, my tendency and temptation is to take some credit, to feel good about my works, to to think that I've earned some favor from God. No, that is not grace. Grace is a a, a full understanding of a favor from God that you didn't earn or deserve. And so I, I believe it's clear then when you get back to chapter 6, Paul's talking about, about grace in chapter 5. And then he says this in verse 3 of chapter 6. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? 
Now, let me just say this. A lot of people will read that in verse 3 and say, Hey, there you have it. The reason you were joined with Christ is because of baptism. That's what it says. Really? Well, well yeah. That, I mean, that is what it says. and That's what I thought. That's what it means. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have no access. I wasn't at Golgotha, except right. that except that by way of the sacraments, I get to be. But even if you were at Golgotha, now think of this. Even if you were to see our Lord bleeding in your place on that cross, would that make you saved? No, that's a good point. What? Even though you see it? Even though you see the soldier come by getting ready to pop his legs, and he doesn't. Sure. And the other soldier coming by and piercing his side and blood and water flow. You're telling me that even if you were there, you wouldn't automatically be saved even though you see it, you experience it, you hear the the insults of the people. You may even hear the Lord say to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, that's a great point, right? It's not just being there because the penitent thief, right, St. Dismas, he is absolved by Christ and has promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. But that other thief on the other side, he was right there. He watched Jesus die because they had to break that guy's legs, right? And they come to Jesus and he's already dead. He watched Jesus die. He watched the atonement happen. He watched the salvation of the world, the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. And he was still damned, right? Whereas St. Dismas, the penitent thief, was not. So yeah, it's not just being there. Now that, that one centurion... Right, he makes that confession in the Gospel of Mark. Right, surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was innocent. What had Jesus been doing from the cross? He'd been preaching. Yes, he'd been preaching. He'd been praying. Remember, he's like uh, quoting the Psalm. Yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Yeah, some think he even said the entire Psalter. Right. No doubt. Right. No doubt. And so faith cometh by hearing. And so the Roman soldier has been. Yeah. Hearing the word of God, preach the word of God. Sure, sure. It's pretty easy for him to deduce, surely this is the son of God. Just like the Philippian jailer. What had Paul and Silas been doing in the jail? Singing hymns. Yeah. They weren't singing, shine, Jesus, shine. Let this land with the glory. They hadn't been doing that. Right. They're singing pedagogical hymns right. that are really the gospel set to, the, to music. Yeah, the Shema, the Psalms. Sure. Right, the Old Testament canticles. But as well, there were other onlookers of the crucifixion, right? The Gospels are clear that the people walk by and scoff. They uh, didn't get saved the, just yeah, by the, seeing, right, seeing it? The thief right next to him, right, on the other side uh, that reviled him, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees who were making sure this stuff got carried out right. Pilate prepared the Lamb of God to be sacrificed. Right, and and we still have records in church history that he still didn't believe afterwards. Right, when he like confronts Mary Magdalene uh, in church history later. But 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 still, all of that being said, but then to interrupt you, hold your thought. You've got Peter preaching the sermon that you are the ones who put Jesus on the cross, and the people say, "What must we do?" Hmm. And he says, "What? Repent and be baptized, what? every one of you." Repent and be baptized, every one of you? But this promise is for you and your children. <laughs> for you and your what? Yeah. The point is, is what, what this brother is doing is he's preaching. It's like you've said earlier, he's just the cherry picking yeah. 
and missing out on yeah. all of the baptismal passages. Right. You were going to make a point, and I interrupted you. Yeah, my, my whole point with all of that was that we do get to be at Golgotha, whatever language that you'd want to use with it, right, in this in this beatific vision of, of the sacrament of the altar, in this being bound to the person of Christ in baptism. That is, you know, this language Paul used like, what, 160-something times? In, in Christ! In Christo, in Christ, you are in Christ. This language of this identity, this ontology, this who you are, who you are is a baptized child of God who gets to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, participate in this sacrifice, in this divine life of God. This is the problem. The modern evangelical Christians do not understand that when Paul uses this language of in Christ, that is baptismal. Right. They look at it as making a decision, as right. noetic. And that's the thing, too. When you come at the scriptures, when you come at the faith from a back door, you are the hobo that steals the pie off the church's window. It does not belong to you, but you come in and snag it, and sure, you could still enjoy the cherry pie, but it doesn't belong to you, right? Because you have come in through a different way. You've come in through a back door, like Jesus says in the parable. These uh, intruders have come in through another door. Well, then look what else he says. We join him in his death. Anybody in here join Jesus in his death 2,000 years ago? No. He's not speaking literally here. He's not speaking literally. Why not? Yes, I did get to join him in his death. Right? I am baptized. I do get to participate, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, in this sacrifice, in this sacrament of the altar. Yes, I do get to join him there. Right? By virtue of these sacraments, these mysteries, I do get to join him there. Even if you want to say that it's not literal. Now he's picking and choosing what's literal and what's not. Right. He's the arbitrator. Exactly. Right. He And again, I don't know him. He's probably very smart, knows the scriptures better than he, me. He does. But does he have any recollection of the history of interpretation? No. Does he have any idea no. about what the church has always said, how the church has taught these things, and, and all these different ways that the church has interpreted the scriptures, right? Multiple meanings that a single passage can have. What about Paul, who says, and I was trying to recall this just the other day, and I'm going to butcher it, but uh, he says, you have been justified, you've been sanctified, and then he says, you've been glorified. Now, this messes us up because we realize we have not been glorified. We've been justified and sanctified, but we're still waiting for the last day when we will be glorified. Just like you were at Golgotha based upon your baptism, you, based upon your baptism, are already glorified. Yeah, not to mention, you know, to use the language of John, that when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, that is when he is glorified, right? That the, uh, the Spirit is not even given until the Son of Man is glorified, i.e. crucified, on the cross, right? The crucifixion of God is his glory. So, I mean, there's that language as well that, that John gives us. Well, that's, yeah, but that's, uh, that's not literal. That's true. It's not literal because you say so. He's speaking metaphorically. In other words, he, he's, he's not saying, listen, you have to literally be baptized in order to be joined with Christ. That's totally opposite of what Paul teaches. You want to be joined with Christ? It's your faith. Here's the problem. That doesn't mean anything either. Because what you have is either fideism, just this belief in abstract faith itself, uh, or you just have this moment where you end up in despair. Okay? So 
when I was younger and I kept hearing this language, either from evangelicals or from Lutheran pastors that dibble dabble in evangelical talk too much, it was always faith, 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 faith talk. So every time I'd go to confession, I would just be beside myself because I do not have enough faith. Measurably, objectively, concretely, I do not have enough faith because I had no idea what that meant. Faith is not just an end in itself. It always attaches itself to something. So you do not have enough faith or that you're saved by faith. Yes, that's true, but it's true in a context. It's not just that you believe in faith or that you have faith in faith or faith in your own faith. It's not an abstraction. Well, and what this guy's doing is he is pitting scriptures against one another. Yeah, that's a good point. Again, we're going to use this language of using the history of interpretation and allowing the, the church and your fathers to teach you, to catechize you, as, as, as Jesus says, teaching you all these things. Um, you have to kind of figure it out on your own. And where that leads you is instead of, of if you, A, if you don't understand something, allowing that to stand and realize that it's above your pay grade, uh, or B, realizing that there is an inherent unity of the scriptures. True, but this is not above our pay grade. Jesus says to Nicodemus very clearly, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Right. Then he, Nicodemus says what he says about what are you talking about? Is it entering into your mother's womb a second time? No, of course not. It is spirit and water. Yeah. So the point is, this is very clear. Or, as you say, you steal the cherry pie from the church like the hobo. Right. Number one, in his defense, he's just parroting that which he has been taught. Sure, that's what catechesis is. But, and he would, he would never think that he was ever doing this, but he is misleading people. Yeah, most likely that's not going to be his purpose, is to mislead people. Um, but that's what often happens with these evangelicals is, you know, like I said, they sneak into the back window or the back door. They find these things in the church. And now, especially in the postmodern age, um, like my generation wants substance. We're sick and tired of what the boomers did, of what they gave us, because it's nonsense and it's empty, just like all these words, right? It's just empty. We want substance. We want authenticity. We want something that's real. And so the evangelicals, the charismatics, whatever, they, they find these things like like sacraments or, or creeds or hymns or even the Psalms. And they're like, hot dang, son. Have you heard of this creed? Or for example, a guy I knew in college uh, who was at a Baptist seminary, he sent me a text one time asking, he's like, hey, have you, have you ever read the Augsburg Confession? I'm like, yes, yes, I have. He's like, have you, have you ever read Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession? He's like, that, is, that must be the most profound, beautiful thing I've ever read about God. And I'm just like, oh, sweetheart. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. All that is, is the absolute bare bones of what the church has always confessed about who God is. It is the complete simplification of the Nicene Creed. And you've never been exposed to that. So, so my whole point is that they come in through this back door and they don't know what to do with this stuff. Well, my hope is, is that your tribe increases. You're, you're joined because of grace, and the how you get joined is through faith, believing, trusting. Now, I love what Tom said. Even, even that, we understand. We're, we're dependent on the Lord. And so, what Paul is saying here, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus 
in baptism we were joined in his death. Now, so what is Paul using metaphorically here this word baptism for? Because it pictures what happens when you were saved. When you were saved, you died in yourself. You died to self. And you identified with Jesus' death on the cross. It should have been your death. And so when you trust Him, you understand that was for my sins. And so the baptism then, in picturing the, the death and the burial of Jesus, that He died for our sin, that identifies now with me and my testimony. That's what Paul is saying. Have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ, Jesus, and baptized, you were joined with Him in His death? Look at verse 4. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. But, but that's not literal, okay, Vic? Don't, don't, don't take that as literal, even though it's pretty clear what Paul says there. Now, again, you take that literally... You, you, we, you died and were buried with Christ? That's not literal. You, you don't, when you're saved, go back 2,000 years ago and hang on the cross with Jesus. You, you don't come off the cross dead and go be put in the grave with Jesus. So the baptism then is a symbol. This is also weird, where there's always this kind of modernist imposition upon the Scriptures, where, of course, you don't go back 2,000 years right? Where we take this kind of modernist approach to everything in the scriptures, including time, right? So whether, whatever it is, if it's, if it's liturgy or if it's fasting or if it's prayer or if it's piety or if it's marriage or whatever it is, there's just this kind of like modernist impulse to be like, that's just Bible stuff. So it has to be metaphorical. It, it can't, it can't be literal. Whatever those words mean anyway, it can't be that because, of course, we know as, as, as modern men, right, we're not knuckle-draggers who do all these terrible things, and we know that can't be literal. So there's this awful modern impulse to do that. If we can't wrap a rational mind around it, like baptism saves or how the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, well, then we just know that it can't be that way. Um, and, and again, you just take that and run with it, and you just get, you just get the American church um, where, where Paul was a misogynist, uh, where Jesus was just a teacher, where everything and its cousin is just a symbol, and you just end up with the American church. It's a picture of what Jesus did for you on the cross. It's your testimony. That's why, that's why when you hear somebody, uh, you know, and watch the baptism, you're, you're doing it as a way to, to, to celebrate with them what they're saying in that testimony through baptism. What, what was, what, what? We're not, we're celebrating with them what, I don't even know, I lost it there. You know, we're not even talking about what God is doing for this person in their baptism. Yeah, it all becomes what you get to do in this symbol because it, I guess it's all about you and it's all about this symbol and it's all about this witness. And I mean, even if we think about, you know, Old Testament, you know, types and shadows of baptism, right? Uh, we think about the Red Sea. Not to mention that, you know, tons of these people were infants and carried through the Red Sea um, and walked through on dry ground and, you know, like Paul says, uh, baptized in the Red Sea. Um, but besides that, there was no witnesses there, right? All of Pharaoh's army were drowned in the sea. 
that means. So they're witnessing to each other, I guess, but they're they're all in the Red Sea together. I mean, again, that's fine if we want to say it's it's a witness, but if anything, it's it's only a transcendental witness. The demons can see the mark of your baptism. Your angel can see the mark of your baptism. God looks at you and see his baptized child. But to the people around you, if there's anybody there, that's just not that's just not the case. And then and then can there be no private baptisms, which I mean, if baptism doesn't matter anyway, I guess it wouldn't matter. But can you can you baptize somebody without an audience? Or does there have to be someone to be there to watch and clap and take pleasure and all these things? Yeah, to make it effectual. Yeah, I mean, however effectual a symbolic baptism can be. <laughs> like, do you have to have an audience or or can you just, you know, like you said, if you go into a hospital room and there's a lady dying, can you, like, do nurses have to come in and watch so it's a good witness? Or, Well, one thing that we've already touched on and we'll say it here again, because the evangelical has thrown out all of the true sacraments, not only has worship been elevated to what you and I would call a pseudo-sacrament, but also the testimony. One's testimony has been elevated to pseudo-sacrament. This is why in many churches, one would actually share their testimony before being baptized, whether in person or on video. And again, not to say that any of that is wrong. Right. But when you say that baptism, now this guy hasn't said this, not yet, and he may not, but what I learned from him was baptism is, just like the wedding ring, it's a symbol to everybody else that I've made an internal commitment to Jesus. I'm on team Jesus. Yeah, it's just all about you. I mean, it's nothing about what God does for you. And that's the thing is that the scriptures are about you. They are, they're the story of your salvation. Sure, that's fine but they are about what God does for you, right? It's like that language with David and Goliath. Like, yeah, you can put yourself in that story. That's fine, right? But you are the Israelites running away, wetting your pants, right? So the scriptures are about you. This is about you, but it's about what God does I for it was you. Da- I thought I was David. See, that's the thing is, is that, and that's the thing too, is that in Christ, in Christ, you are David, right? But, the, because, but only in Christ, because that's Christ who stands in the breach. It's Christ who... You know, I mean, and that's great, that that uh, account of David and Goliath, because David descends into hell and fights this giant with serpent-like armor. Right? I thought that was my mother-in-law. <laughs> you can't keep that. You can't keep that. <laughs> but that's this beautiful image, right, where, where you're like, yeah, in Christ, you do conquer. Like, John's very clear in the Revelation that, like, that the saints conquer but it's by the blood of the lamb that the saints conquer. So David stands in that breach, and yeah, in Christ you conquer, but you are that Israelite who's running away wetting your pants. So the sad part about all of that is the onus is just completely and entirely on you, right? Like we always say, only leads to pride or despair, right? And I can tell you from, you know, when I was all up in arms about this as, as like a high school or college kid, uh, that this faith, faith, faith language, it was just, it, it was, it was either pride or despair. Where on, you know, one day I'm like, yeah, I do have a lot of faith. There's no language about faith in what or how I got that faith or anything like that. But, but usually it was, I do not have enough faith because this way that you speak about faith, I do not have that. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Notice what else this is. And just as Christ 
was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we now also may live new lives. <laughs> but that's not literal. Why not? I mean, again, if we get to be the arbitrators of whatever the Bible gets to mean, and me and my small little bubble gets to decide, then sure, I guess you can say it's not literal. Man, um, I hope it is literal. Yeah, of course it's literal. What, again, whatever that word literal means, but yeah, of course it's literal. Why wouldn't you want that to be literal? I guess just because you can't, I mean, you can't wrap your mind around that. Why would you strip all of the, the meaning and the power? Why would you leave it? It's, it's almost like that text that he's reading is like a, a large wolf. And when that bites into your brain, you're like, wow. But it's like he's defanged it all. And now it's nothing but like a toothless little chihuahua nipping at your heels, just slobbering everywhere. That's a beautiful image. Why would you do that? Because he's taken his mantra for what what we call sacraments, right? For what baptism is. And he puts it right on top of Romans 6. But, I mean, that's, that's scripture, right? That's true. That you, that you get to walk in newness of life. Just like it says in Genesis chapter 1 where you have a brand new creation coming from the Spirit and the water and the Word for crying out loud. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's everywhere. Whether it's Genesis 1 with creation, whether it's the flood of Noah, whether it's the Israelites in the Red Sea or the water that comes from the rock, or especially in, in Ezekiel, the water that flows from the right side of the temple. Right? That all of this finds its source, its completion in in the crucifixion of christ right where where christ the rock is struck and the water flows from his side not even to mention that the material with which god made adam was this source this font in the garden right that adam is made with this dust and with this water that flows from this font in the garden this this source in the garden and so that all that all comes to a head at christ right at christ crucified that we are baptized in that water that flowed from his side so yes that's what what paul is saying is is obviously true this these scriptures are obviously true but for him i guess they're true in so far as that fits with his theology if you listen carefully at most of our baptisms and we have different people that that baptism, we, at the last service, we showed uh, Bo Bartlett, Travis's son. Bo was, was baptized, and Bo, uh, Travis baptized his son. And, and, and for those that, that baptize, you know, we always try to help them to know, okay, this is what you do, this is what you say. There's not some formula. I've, I've, I've had dads that, that have baptized their kids and they get real nervous and they just forget what to say and they just kind of dunk them and bring them up. Listen, it's not in the words you say. But if you notice what Kyle said, and you'll hear it a lot when you see and hear a baptism, when they take the person under, Kyle said, buried with him in his baptism. Now, again, that's a symbol. He wasn't actually buried with him. But the baptism symbolizes that. This water and going under the water is the picture of Jesus dying on the cross and being put in a grave. And then what did Kyle say when he brought Sugus up? Raised to walk in newness of life. What is that? That's the picture of the resurrection of Christ. Which what Paul said, Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried according to the Scripture. And he was raised from the dead according to the Scripture. 
That's that picture now of Sugus' testimony. Buried with Christ in in baptism. Identifying with Jesus on the cross. When you become a Christian, you're saying, listen, I now identify with Christ. In fact, the Bible says I have been crucified with Christ. It's symbolic. You you weren't with him on the cross, but you're identifying. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. You need to understand this. It's important to know, okay, this this is that testimony that I give as a testimony of what Jesus has done for me. Listen, baptism is not about the person being baptized. I mean, yeah, we call their name out. You know, Kyle shared his story. I mean, it was a neat deal. But it's all about what Jesus did. Sugis' testimony is, hey, Jesus died on the cross for me. And when I confessed Him as Lord and repented for my sin, He saved me. He forgave me. And now I have a new life. That's how incredible baptism is. That's why to sit at a baptism service and just kind of yawn. I mean, can you imagine somebody coming to a Lord's Supper service and and say they're a Christian, but yet just say, yeah, I don't want to take the Lord's Supper. I mean, we would go, what? I mean, do you know how sacred that is? <coughs> you're taking You're taking his... This piece of bread that symbolizes his body. Yeah, Vic, you're taking this piece of bread that symbolizes his body. Yeah, I don't know why it's sacred if it's just a symbol. I really don't. You know don't. what? I, I, I'm sick of symbols. Symbols do not save you. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, what? why do I have to feel like a symbol is something that I'm supposed to worship? The problem that I'm seeing here is this. is a is the same one that you see. I mean, Helen Keller can see this. Ray Charles could see this. Ronnie Millsap can see this. You can't take Jesus' words where Jesus says, this is, and then insert your own word. Yes, I can if I say, this can't be, so this must be this. I can totally do that. It's really easy, and people do it all the time because I come from outside the Scriptures and say, no, that, that can't be right. It's the same thing the heretics did. It's the same thing even in our own modern age the, the higher critics did or, or, or whatever issue the church has gone through. People have come in and said, yes, it says this, but it can't be this. There can't be a male-only priesthood. Uh, there can't be only one God. God can't be three in one. Baptism can't save you. Jesus can't be true God and true man. Right. To be orthodox, you can't say that. Yes, exactly. If you want to be a heretic... Or heterodox, sure. Right. I grant it to you. You could say it all day long. But to be part of the Orthodox Church Catholic, no, you can't say that. You can't say all of these things that Jesus has said are something else. That's why what's great about being Lutheran is that you never have to make up excuses for the Bible says what it says. This was such a big deal for me, what you're talking about here, because, as you said earlier, I mean, being in the camp that I was raised in, obviously with this teacher that we're listening to is a major influence in my life for, I don't know, 10 years. I mean, we knew the Bible. Now, as Walther says, if you don't know law and gospel, the Bible remains a closed book. But we knew the Bible. 
and we knew the data. Why wouldn't everybody want to be orthodox? Why wouldn't they want to get rid of their heterodoxy and even their heretical views that they might not even realize that they have? I mean, I heard somebody say this one time. It's always stuck with me for many, many years. Most Christians, they never go beyond what they learned in the 7th or 8th grade. And that's why when you, even as a vicar, as a lowly, lowly little vicar, even as you, when you present these things here on this podcast, I mean, there are some people who just like, like it's, it's like overload. And so what they're going to do is they're just going to throw it all out because it's just, it's upper level for their thinking because their thinking in regard, all they've heard their whole life is Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, your baptism is your testimony, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just vapidness. And so, when you present substance, there's either two schools of thought. There is the, the side that says, this is crazy talk. Or B, as you were mentioning earlier, there's a group of people who say, oh my goodness, where's this been my whole life? Yeah, and as you know, Peter says, that as a newborn infant, you long for the pure spiritual milk, as you should, right? As a neophyte, as a, as a newborn Christian, you should long for that pure spiritual milk. But the author of the book of Hebrews says that you are called to move from that milk to solid food. You are to be growing every day, uh, both in, in holiness and in right knowledge of God, right? That the entire life of the Christian is catechesis, and that does not stop at confirmation or at seventh or eighth grade, right? That even from the very beginning, when, when Moses teaches the people, right? He, he gives them creeds. He gives them catechesis. He gives them the Shema. He gives them the commandments. It's all catechesis, and it doesn't end. So like when you and, and Dr. Bruss go on and, and gas off about stuff that I, I have no idea what you're talking about, because you are just light years ahead of me. I know. <laughs> I can either just ignore you or check it out yourself. Or I could check it out myself. I could sit at the feet of men who are wiser, more experienced than I am, and I can I can learn from them. And this is what the Christian life always is. It's always learning and growing in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. That was broken for you. You're, you're, you're taking a cup that symbolizes his blood that was shed for you. When you see somebody baptized, you're seeing again that picture of salvation and hearing the testimony that this person identifies with it in his own life. Here's the third thing I put in your notes. The third picture or the message of baptism is you identify with this church. <coughs> you identify with this church. And, and if somebody were to walk the aisle this morning and come up to one of us down here and say, hey, listen, I want to join First Baptist. I mean, I would be excited. I'd be welcoming. I, I mean, I would be full of joy. But, but I'm telling you, the first question I'm going to ask is, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? So I'm not even going to bother with that last part because that's just too low-hanging fruit. Beneath. But this episode is called Low-Hanging Fruit with the Vic. <laughs> but what I do find really interesting, and it, it takes us right back to, to Matthew 28 where we started, is this idea that you are the church. That that first Baptist church in, in wherever you are, you are 
the church, right? So besides the fact that, of course, you've severed yourself from the body of Christ, and of course, the body of Christ is always attached to its head, right, being Christ himself. So if you've severed yourself from the body of Christ, you've severed yourself from Christ. So if you're outside his church, you're outside of Christ. So he's outside the historic Orthodox Church Catholic, right? But anyway, there's still this there's still this trend that you are the church, right? That your four walls and pulpit and big tub or even just a regular baptismal font, that you are the church. You are not the church. So in Kansas, north of us, we have Fort Leavenworth, right? That big historic military base. Fort Leavenworth is not the army. It is part of the army. It participates in the army. But the army is so much bigger than Fort Leavenworth. Now, Fort Leavenworth is instrumental to the army and necessary for the army. Sure. But it is not the army. You are not the church. You participate in something that you participate in something that is so much bigger than you. You are not the only person that's ever walked the earth with a Bible. All these things are bigger than you. So it's frustrating when he says things like become part of the church. But baptism, though, does incorporate you into the body of Christ, into the church. Exactly. That you in your small church, whether you are in Russia or Topeka or Florida, where, wherever you are, yeah, you are part of this massive, divine, transcendental, eternal enterprise of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And not just visibly, but there is an invisible right church right that we have the church militant and the church triumphant and that we as the church militant soldier on and we keep fighting and we keep marching uh, but we are still part of the eternal church so the point with that that brings us back to matthew 28 is that you don't get to decide what the bible says you might not be beholden to every church father that's ever gone before you but you are beholden to the church and by virtue of your baptism god is your father and the church is your mother, and you are in Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit. Because you're not joining an organization. You're not just getting your name on a membership list. You're joining a body of believers that the Bible would call in 1 Corinthians 12, <coughs> the body of Christ. That's what we're called. That's pretty important. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for somebody getting water. And if you... Uh, and if that person said, yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Christ, I've, I've been saved, here's my next question. Have you been baptized? Now, again, is baptism a, a requirement for salvation? No. Is baptism a requirement for church membership? Well, I, I believe if you're a part of the body of Christ, you, you said... I have committed to follow Christ and I want to join with a group of people that are following Christ. What's the command that Jesus has given us? To be baptized. If that person says, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't do this baptism thing. Thank you, brother. I, I, I just don't do that. I, I'm not into the baptism thing. I, then my response would be, hey, let's just sit down and visit because I want to show you what the Bible says about how important baptism is. Does it save you? No. Does it, is it a requirement for you to go to heaven? No. 
But it is an important part of you unashamedly sharing your testimony. And it does then identify you with a, a body of believers. You're saying to them, hey, listen, this is my family. I'm giving my testimony, and I'm following in obedience to what Jesus said to do. Pretty important. L- let, me, let me jump to some application. First of all, put in your notes, trust in Jesus alone for salvation. I mean, I hope that clearly when you think about baptism, you, you think in terms of, of it is a symbol of, that communicates a message about what Jesus did and what my testimony is. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why the Trinity? Because they're all involved. For God so loved the world, God the Father, that He gave His only begotten Son, God the Son. And we know when Jesus said, listen, I'll be with you always... What does that mean? That's the Holy Spirit. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them well, for whatever reason, that's all we've got of the sermon. And uh, it's probably probably good that he ends there because, uh, Vic, we've gone on for, I finally got to talk. What do you expect? You, you talked a lot, and, I, and I'm grateful. But, man, this is just so painful to have to hear this sermon, and like I said, to my shame, this is this was a teacher of mine, and this is what I turned around and taught. I took uh, the beautiful truth of what baptism truly is and truly gives one and turned it into some sort of law and made it uh, a part of uh, obedience and made it a part of, um, of your testimony. It's really sad. Yeah, instead of just taking it for what Jesus says that it is taking it on his word and at his word yeah you have to conform it to whatever you want it to be uh, which again takes it from the gift the gospel that it is and just puts all the onus on you and there's something that doesn't even matter it's just a symbol anyway oh yeah a symbol oh my goodness this brings me back to I think a point that I was trying to make earlier and I totally forgot coming out of the camp did I say this coming out of the camp that I came out of believing the Bible so uh, vehemently Mm -hmm. and passionately, and then to look at things like this and realize, man, these Lutherans believe the Bible even more so than I do. Mm. Like, they believe that the world was created in six days. I do, too. They believe that Jonah was swallowed by a a large fish. Well, I do, too. They believe that uh, Mary gave birth really through... Uh, you know, her ear canal is when she got impregnated, when the angel spoke to her. Hey, I do too. Uh, they believe that uh, baptism actually does something, i.e. the forgiveness of your sins, life, and salvation. Whoa! They believe that baptism actually saves you. Again, these were roadblocks in my own mind. How is it that the Lutherans who don't even carry their Bibles to church believe it more so than me? Yeah, and I guess there's something that goes really deep there. Um, That when all you have is the Bible, you don't have church, you don't have the pastorate, you don't have sacraments, you fight over that thing to the death, and you should. But then, you know, with all of these issues we've had with higher criticism or rejection of the scriptures, whatever it is, 
you know, you defend that so hard that the earth was created in six days and God rested on the seventh day. You can't say more than that. Jonah was swallowed by a fish, but you can't say more than that. Uh, God's people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, but you can't say more than that, right? These are all only literal things that can mean nothing more. So baptism has to be the same way. And maybe, you know, for their benefit, it's, it's to preserve the integrity of the scriptures, to say that baptism can't be this way because we can only speak about the scriptures in one way. But at the same time, somebody from my previous camp could look at the six-day creation, one-day resting and say, see, this is referring to how God structured everything, how he does want you to stop and how he wants you to worship him. They could look at Jonah and the large fish and say, this is what Jesus was talking about. In that three days, he would lie in the tomb and that on the third day, he would be, quote unquote, vomited up. Like they can make correlations between the New Testament and the Old as the New Testament helps to explain what happened in the Old. But when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper, and as you said, confession and absolution and the pastoral office, all of these things, that connection is never made. Hmm. They don't know what to do with the keys. The evangelicals do not know what to do with what you bind in heaven, what you unloose in heaven. They, they They got nothing. It's not even just for everybody that you go and for, forgive the sins of your brother who sins against you? Maybe. Not, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, Vic, we could probably continue to go on and on here, but uh, I wanted you to, to hear uh, what you said earlier to me that a lot of your classmates, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they, they come out of evangelical backgrounds. Yeah, it's not that way with every class at seminary, uh, but for some reason or another, my cohort... Um, I think the majority of them were not raised in any Lutheran church. Well, I pray, I really do, and it's part of what the Pluck Chicken is all about, is to just put our stuff out there in hopes that the Lord would use it to begin to, well, correctly catechize a vast swath of American Christianity that really is heterodox in many, many of their teachings and beliefs. So thank you very much, Vic, for being here. Thank you. Hope you finish up uh, at Baser here pretty soon, and then you'll be heading back for your last year. Yep. And then uh, we will look forward to great anticipation to see where the Lord places you. Me too. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.